Generation Red Pill. You know us, just two guys going beyond conspiracy theories, getting right to the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host, Christopher Dean. Spoiler alert. Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. The film over your eyes, Avatar, The Way of Water with Drew Misson. Did James Cameron raise the bar of the motion picture industry once again? Or in his latest Hollywood blockbuster, is it embedded with so much spiritual messaging he may not even be aware of it all? We're going to talk about this and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill, the film over your eyes. Gentlemen, everyone from across the pod first, no matter what planet you call home, welcome back to another segment of the film over your eyes, where we try to help you see the subtle messaging embedded in popular TV shows and films, many of which have content that is aimed at reprogramming your mind so that you think less like Christ and more like Satan. Now, here we are once again, having to get behind the lens, look at the film, get between the cuts to see what's going on, what has really been programming us. And we had to go far and wide and get some help. Now, we got Christopher Dean. We got him out of the studio. Literally, he went to Paramount. He went to Fox. He went to Universal. He even got behind the mouse ears at Disney to see what's happening on Pandora. And he got some secret information. He's going to share it with us. But we had to call in the big guns. We needed to go get some help. We had to find somebody who was lost. And I'm telling you, he didn't know he was lost, but it's right in his name. He was missing. Who am I talking about? We had to go and get Drew missing from down under right into Queensland. So we got them all together. I need you, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together. Take the left one. Take the right one. Slap them together and welcome both my co-hosts for today, Drew missing and Christopher Dean. How's it going, bro? What's happening, baby? How we doing? Not bad. Not bad. Drew, how you doing, man? I'm, I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. It is wonderful to have you. Are you ready to dip your toes in the water and deep dive on this one? Ready to jump in, have a swim? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> First off, we, we don't dip. Anything we do, we do 110% full bore. But I got to say, I don't think I'm ready for Avatar. There's a lot hidden in here. There's a lot we got to talk about that I'm just not ready to go into. So what I'm going to need to do is to take a quick break and collect myself. Gentlemen, I am bewildered. It occurs to me that we live in a day and age of extreme confusion, specifically on what it means to be human. No one seems to be able to define it, yet so many are working tirelessly to improve upon it, which to me represents a befuddling paradox. 
We've got genetics, robotics, artificial intelligence, and even nanotechnology that are all being systematically fused together in an effort to help steer humanity towards what transhumanists are calling the next stage in human evolution. And it's not hard to see how such a movement would fit squarely within the operational objectives of what Dr. Laura Sanger calls the Nephilim Agenda, a satanic initiative designed to achieve many objectives, one of which is the reinstitution of the antediluvian protocols that led to the defilement of the human race. Through the use of fallen angel technology and occult sciences like illicit hybridization, humanity was merged with other life forms resulting in monsters being created and a Pandora's box of sorts being opened. Given the fact that most people lack sufficient awareness of this history and are equally ignorant of the current transhumanist push, I ask you, could film franchises like Avatar be serving a dual role, one of mindless entertainment and another one of cognitive conditioning of preparing us to accept the blending of humanity once again? What say ye? Bro, where do you come up with these questions? From time to time, I, as Drew said, dabble my foot in the, the, the basking, the, the wonderful inquiries that are before me. And I have to pull out an inquiry of such from time to time. You know, for the audience's sake, man, you got to capture their attention. Because, you know, some people, when they see us doing a Film of Your Eyes episode, they get a little touchy. You can see the eyes rolling in the back of the head. They like, once again, here we go. Yeah. It took all the Aussie smart ass in me not to jump at the very end of that question and just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, ladies and gentlemen. We're done. That's all you need. Oh, uh, that's funny. That's funny. But no, you're right. People get touchy about this. And I, I'm not sure if you're aware, Drew, but this particular show segment is under attack by our listeners in, in, in two different camps. So there's the people out there that can't stand us ruining their favorite movies. I mean, I don't even know. Drew might be able to relate. <laughs> yeah, your hand went up. I don't, I don't even think we've heard back from TJ since we did the Batman one. Oh, no, no. He's Must like, been a good one, we're, we're not even friends anymore. <laughs> well, he hasn't flown over to kill me yet, so I couldn't have ruined it that bad. Well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I think he's putting together a plan. To take all of us out. You know, one of them Batman S type plans, because he wasn't happy about that. He's gonna wear this suit and everything. It involves yeah. a cow, doesn't it? That's funny. So so that's that's one camp of our listeners. And then there's the other camp that actually feel personally and deeply offended that we would even waste our time talking about movies in the first place. Here's looking at you, Megan. <laughs> Uh, but to, uh, to hopefully kind of dismantle that a little bit, I, I think it's important. One of the things that's helped me uh, put this information in proper perspective is to realize that the television can actually be used as a weapon and an occult weapon at that. So it's, uh, it's interesting to me. I was actually talking to my mom about this, which is kind of funny, um, that Many of the enemy's um, devices are designed to either circumvent or reduce our ability to think. Ooh. Yeah. I was like, man, that's crazy. And then- What did your mom think about that? She, ma she made the same exact sound you did. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. It would have been great if she asked, did you say Dancing with the Stars this week? <laughs> no, she doesn't. She doesn't really watch TV. Good on her. Yeah, yeah. But there's there's actually been a bunch of stuff popping up on, on social media 
recently, it's probably, you know, because my phone is listening to me, but apparently since 1954, there have been at least 23 different mind control patents granted to the United States. And many of them focus on either the TV monitors, uh, liquid crystal displays, and even low EMF fields that are put out by the devices, which means that you don't even have to actually be like looking at the screen to have parts of, of, um, your body manipulated. Like one of them is that your nervous system, which is just crazy to think about. And beyond that, uh, we know that the TV actually changes your brainwave state from beta to alpha. And this takes less than a minute. And it makes you more susceptible to the programming that is that is in whatever media that you're watching. And um, an alpha state is, it's not quite like being asleep, but it's like a, a, a twilight, like in between uh, almost, um, what is it, like med- meditative state or whatever, really relaxed, um, which is super interesting because I was watching James Cameron answer a bunch of like his fans number one questions or whatever. And he had this to say about the, um, what he thought about the, the jungle aesthetic from Avatar. But I also have a special place for the, for the forest at night. Now the forest was great to create. And we made a decision to make it green, not some, not purple, not cyan, some strange color by day. Cause we wanted the audience to feel grounded. We didn't want the CG to look too much like CG. We wanted it to look like a reality. And then the forest comes to light, t- comes to life at night with the bioluminescence. And then it becomes really otherworldly and dreamlike. And it takes me, loops me back to that dream that I had when I was uh, when I was 18, 19 years old. And uh, you know, it's you know, I call it dreaming with your eyes wide open. And that's what we wanted to create with Avatar. Dreaming with your eyes wide open. That's what he wanted to create with Avatar. He got a dream. Exactly. That sounds like he was direct downloaded some information. Right. Right. And he said that I've, I've watched a bunch of stuff and the whole idea of Avatar came from this dream that he had when he was 18, something about a bioluminescent forest. And it was so real. Like he, I think he drew pictures of it like immediately after. And it's been like this seed of an idea just growing and waiting to come out for years. It's crazy. Well, I don't want to step on your toes, Christopher, but do you know what he originally wanted to call Avatar when he started to develop it back in the 70s? I actually don't. It was around, based around the, the character of Natiri, so the main female lead, but okay. he built this whole concept of the idea of Avatar before he had the, the idea of naming it Avatar, and it was originally going to be termed Xenogenesis. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's awesome. That's crazy. Yeah, I don't think I don't think as many people would be going to see that. <laughs> All right, Drew, but since you're the teacher, can you define what xenogenesis means for the folk that ain't as hip? Well, xeno would be of alien, so of non-human, and genesis would be the creation, so it's the creation of a non-human entity. That's <laughs> wild. Yeah. Yeah. I can't see any parallels or overlaps with with what the, what he actually developed. <laughs> Right, right. And, and and it's it's crazy that it comes through. Uh, the more I learn about the TV, the more upsetting it really is. Because, I mean, it 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 is a weapon. But even if you don't care 
what James Cameron was going to call the the movie, and maybe you don't even have plans on ever seeing it. I think it's important to pay attention to the embedded messages, and it. I think it helps us gain a better understanding of how the weapon, how this mechanism is is used against us. Um, and another thing I was talking to my mom about was crazy is that um, we were we were talking about how to make improvements in your personal life, and she said we all too often make the mistake of believing that if we know that something needs to change, that it will. Like, oh, I know this is this is the right thing, you know? So we just assume now that I have the knowledge that this needs to change, that it kind of just organically happens out of, out of our knowledge. But it, it really isn't the case. And she made this incredible statement. She said, we aren't creatures of knowledge. We are creatures of habit. And just knowing the right path is not the same as going the right path. So I was like, Ooh. yeah. And I think I've fallen into that too. Like, I mean, Jason, you and I have talked several times about because we learn so much that there there is a separation between what you learn and how much of it actually like bleeds into your behavior, right? Yeah, in my case, there's like a barrier. <laughs> Where none of it bleeds into your behavior. I'm constantly having to try to pull it over the wall. Like, please make a change <laughs> based on what you know, son. Just a small one. <laughs> but when my mom said that, I immediately went to the TV because it, when well, we- Did you we, like go to the TV and ask it a question? Yes. Yes. No, in my mind. Ah. I mean, it was probably because I was, I was partially prepping for this episode, you Thank know, you. but uh, I was like, we, we repeatedly see these messages, right? And our habits are formed by repetition. And uh, we've talked before, but it seems like it's been a minute since we talked about mirror neurons. So our brain actually has these neurons that activate when either performing or observing an action taking place. So a lot of um, scientists or doctors, I don't know what they would be called in this, neurophysicists? I don't know. But they think that mirror neurons is what allows us to be empathetic or to, to better navigate the, the social settings that we find ourselves in. You know, cause we can, we can cry with those that cry and, and be excited with people that are excited because our brains are responding that way, almost as though we're, we're doing it ourselves. But the issue is that our brain doesn't distinguish the real world from the synthetic one that's pumped in through the television. So this is why you get scared when you're watching a horror movie, excited when watching action, you know, and you feel all mushy inside or whatever happens when people watch romances. <laughs> I like how you put that as though you've never seen one. Uh, I I have, but they're they're few and far between. Man, I mean, I don't have a, I don't have an issue with romances, but it's like all my wife wants to watch, so I'm very like burnt out. I'm like, there's other things that we can put on the TV. <laughs> the thing that worries me about TV now, after listening to all of the breakdowns you guys have had with television in general. It's the internal workings. It's getting the visual image of a message they're trying to implant in you on, say, a political or an agenda-based level. But it's the internal workings. If you've ever seen the silicon structures of a microchip, they look like the seals from the Book of Demonology. Really? The way the circuits intersect, they look nearly identical to those. And they're crystalline structures. In school. So- <laughs> How do you know that? Like, what random fact is that? We're like, hey, if you've ever seen this. Like, I feel like I haven't been living life fully now. 
I've got to go get me a microscope and I've got to go check this out. Jason's going to be taking part his TV later. They do. They look <laughs> like the seals. Seals used to trap demons. And because it's a silicon chip based system, in a lot of esoteric and um, pagan beliefs, you can trap entities within crystals. So, not saying it's it's exactly the case, but they're replicating something very similar. That's well, you know what? That's wild, especially. I, I was trying to track this down and, and confirm it, and I wasn't able to, but there was a, a, a podcast I was listening to where the guy was actually, he introduced the topic, the idea to me that the TV was originally created as an occult device. And I was like, you, you've got to be kidding me. And he was like, they were trying to get into other dimensions. And it's even reflected in the various aspects and nature of that technology. For instance, you you if you need to switch between one uh one one thing you're watching to something else, you have to change channels. Channeling's a big thing in the occult. The things that you consume are called programs. Oddly enough, they could have called them anything, but you know, they're programs, which obviously, you know, changes how you think and reconditions your mind, but then the whole telecommunication industry is built on this whole idea of doing things at a distance. And actually, I think it's built on shrinking or, or mitigating the judgment that God put in place after the Tower of Babel, which was not only changing the language, but then also spreading humanity apart. And from that point, humanity has tried to do the exact opposite and come back together and even come together in, in much bigger settings. And so if we were spread apart as originally intended, then the distances that you would have to cover to try to talk to someone else would be almost impossible to do. But if you look at, you know, a telefax, it allows you to send a facsimile at a distance. A telephone allows you to speak with someone else at a distance. You know, a telescope allows you to see at a distance and then a television also allows you to to see into another dimension or another world at a distance all of those devices shrink the distance between us which is kind of weird especially if you're saying drew that deep down even to the dna of the of the device down to the circuitry there's a spiritual s component to its structure and a demonic component at that seems to, to fit right in line. Well, think about the, the rollout of television in general. How many foreign nationals attribute learning English to watching television? If that's bringing back everyone under the one tongue, television's done a really good job at it. Subtitles get mm. thrown into that with more modern day television. But it's the subtle way in which they use television as a programming method to trick people. You look at the infancy in the early days of American television, um, wholesome Americana television are like, I dream of genie, bewitched, Mr. Ed. You look at those now, it's a witch, a genie and a talking horse. If that doesn't give you concerns about what people were watching, <laughs> I don't know what will. Yeah. Right. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. And, and going back to what I was saying, because our brains respond this way, and that there's a separation between what we know and our habits. If our brain is continually running these cognitive simulations based off of what we see, then the whole statement, I know it isn't real, doesn't mean very much because we tend to behave more off of our habits than we do our knowledge. And hours and hours in front of the TV 
And we see the same messages repeated over and over and over in our movies. So if anything is going to have more of an impact on our behavior, it would be the the habits that our, our brain gets into by watching this stuff rather than just knowing a little bit better. And I think that's crazy. I think that's absolutely scary. It because is. Because I've watched hours and hours of DuckTales recently. I know you have. I have no idea how that's now affected <laughs> me. But I started like looking over my left shoulder and right shoulder and talking to the other versions of me. They, <laughs> what, they wear you, different colors. You're, you're the three ducks? <laughs> no, I, I have two other ducks. I'm not three of them. <laughs> I resent the implication, Chris. Fair enough. Fair enough. My mistake. <laughs> But yeah, dude, you know, the, the more of that type of stuff you watch, you and I are constantly talking about it. We'll be in the middle of recording an episode and immediately reference a, a, some sort of a Disney line. Right. And we laugh and about like, it, but it gets, it's getting it's more and more uncomfortable. Right. Because I'm, I'm like, like Disney this, got into my head. This is a lot of knowledge right. that Disney has its hands on. A lot of intellectual property has been right. crafted by the hands of the mouse. That's and then nuts. just and placed in your head. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're a, you're a child, it it really does get concerning. And even this movie we're about to talk about, Avatar, Disney, I think was behind its its production. Or yeah. At least it's on Disney Plus, so I'm assuming they were behind the production of, of the film. Yeah, yeah, they were. Which is now super scary. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just cartoons. And and you you hit me in the forehead the other day with the reality that cartoons were originally created as a propaganda platform right so no 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 they weren't they were made <laughs> for serial and saturdays everybody right. knows this this is, this is the only reason cartoons were created and to help promote <laughs> the toy industry it had nothing to do with programming my mind right right and it's crazy that, to think that disney's one of the biggest players mm-hmm. yeah and they were in bed with the cia very early on helping okay. to create well, they were helping. They were helping the Department of Defense. They, they they were in bed with the CIA to help learn how to create content that could actually change people's thinking, and then they partnered with the Department of Defense in order to basically test that on soldiers, whether it was using like training videos or war propaganda things to kind of you know get them amped up to go fight, whatever whatever it uh, that was necessary to help push the narrative. And they did it with cartoons. Interesting. It's a bunch of Marines watching G.I. Joe. Basically. <laughs> Unfortunately, Eminem wasn't around, so you couldn't put Eminem tracks to it. So I don't I don't know uh, what they used back then. You can sell me alone, you can call out your cars, you can fence in your yard, you can pull out the cars, but I So knowing all of this, I think it it would be it would be naive to think that we we don't have a responsibility to dissect and break down and it and at least attempt 
to dismantle these ideas that have been embedded in us. And one of the first things, I love that you brought this up and made it part of our show segment, Jason, but it's not just a single story that we're being told when it comes to um, these type of movies, right? What do you say that there's three, right? There there are. And I I think it's kind of interesting. We we have three stories being told and it's almost like a a picture. When you look at it, you know, it's kind of funny. We're talking about motion pictures. So when you look at it at a still shot, you have three elements to it. You've got the background, you've got the mid ground and you've got the foreground. And likewise, when we're dealing with films, there are typically three stories that are being told. They're independent, but they're also interlaced with one another. So there is a relationship that's there. Um, the, the first one that's being told on the surface in the foreground is going to be the main story. It's going to have your plot, your characters. This is the type of stuff where if you go to Google, search a movie, get the results, the stuff that it's going to tell you is going to be about the main story. Just underneath that, though, is a secondary story that's being told that has to do more with themes and ideas. And this is the type of information that you're going to get when you start getting movie breakdowns. You know, you go to YouTube, you might hit up uh, Screen Crush, you listen to Ryan Airy, or maybe you're checking out Eric Voss over at New Rockstars, and they're breaking down all these Easter eggs and these themes and ideas that you never had any idea was actually in the film. You're like, oh, my God, I didn't even see it. That's crazy. Wow. That's the secondary level. But the most important and the most subtle is actually what's happening at the foundation in the background on the third level. And that would be what we call spiritual messaging. And the only way that gets revealed is you've got to have somebody that's using uh, biblical discernment to be able to point out these messages that's happening. So maybe you're over at LED Ministries or perhaps you stop by here at ORP to find out what's really going on behind the films. And it's so important because this stuff is, I I didn't believe it at first, but the more we go into these films, the more I see this really is happening. And typically we play a trailer at this point so that people can kind of get a sense of what the film was about. Unfortunately, after going through four, five, six, and seven different trailers, all of them sucked. There was nothing (laughs) that I could use. And I wasn't so upset that there was nothing that I could use for the audience because basically it was all music with a little voiceover. What I was upset about is that I should have been more savvy to realize from these trailers what lay before me when I watched the film. Should have known. <laughs> but they got over on me because I was distracted by the daggone visuals. <laughs> so since we don't have a trailer, what I figured I would do is I'm going to rely on my keen wit and sense of awareness when it comes to this film. And I'm going to break down with a spirit approach to let everybody know who hasn't seen the film what was going on. So, more than a decade after the first movie where victory over the sky people seemed imminent. Okay. James, <laughs> I already don't like it. I, what, what I do don't you mean? like it. No. Well, you said that the trailers that you found were crap. And I just, I'm not, you know, the whole TikTok attention span thing. Dude, I was getting there. Nah, nah, you lost me. But I tell you what, I did hear a good uh, quick synopsis from Eric Voss from New Rockstars. Can we just play that instead of having you go over it again? My ego will not (laughs) allow me to play someone else in lieu. Are you telling me this is what you want, Christopher? You want Eric Voss? Yeah. Fine, if you think it'll help. 
The 2009 Avatar film follows Jake Sully, Sam Worthington, a quadriplegic marine in the year 2154 who joins a mission to a distant moon named Pandora, which has a CO2 heavy atmosphere that requires oxygen masks. Pandora is being mined for a mineral called unobtainium by the RDA, that's the Resources Development Administration, a private corporation even more powerful than Earth's governments. But Pandora is populated by the humanoid Navi, who share a bond with the planet's animals and plant life called Tahelu. Jake replaces his dead brother Tommy to participate in an Avatar program in which the RDA has developed artificial Navi fused with the DNA of human pilots, which is why these big blue things look vaguely like Sam Worthington and Sigourney Weaver. This research team is led by Dr. Grace Augustine, Sigourney Weaver's character, who studies the Navi in the whole botany of Pandora, and she seeks a diplomatic relationship, masking the RDA's true objective to relocate the Navi so they can drill their sacred lands. Jake gets separated from Grace's group by running into a hammerhead titanothere and then fleeing a Thanator, but is saved from a pack of viper wolves by Netiri, that's Zoe Saldana, who nearly kills Jake before an Awa's like, hey, come on, don't. Natiri sees the Awa that surround Jake as a sign that he should be inspected by her mother and a spiritual leader of the Omatakaya clan, Moat. So these Navi see the avatars as freaks, but since Jake is the first one they've met with a warrior background, they decide to study him and teach them their ways. This makes Jake super valuable to Grace, as well as to Parker Selfridge as Giovanni Ribisi, the corporate administrator for the RDA mining operation, and to Colonel Miles Quaritch, Stephen Lang, head of security, who tells Jake to spy on the Navi for him, promising to restore his legs for him back on Earth. But Jake falls in love with Neytiri as he grows into becoming a member of the tribe, bonding with an Ekron, learning how that Sahelu connects the full biosphere via a chemical electrical network, and Jake ends up hooking up with Neytiri. But Selfridge mows down a sacred spiritual grove and sends Quaritch to strike home tree. Jake and Grace try to convince the Navi to evacuate, but the Navi feel betrayed, and they stand their ground against the human assault, but it kills Neytiri's father and wrecks the tree. Grace is shot in the escape, and she ends up dying in a failed attempt to transfer her consciousness to her Navi body at the Tree of Souls. Jake ends up bonding with the mythologized Taruk and returns to the Navi as their champion, uniting the clan and leading the Navi in a battle in the Hallelujah Mountains, or Aramalusing, the rocks suspended in a flux vortex due to the Meissner effect that scrambles the human aircraft's navigation. Meanwhile, the Pandoran wildlife comes to the Navi aid. Quaritch suits up in an AMP exoskeleton and attacks Jake's human body, but Etiri ends up killing Quaritch, and she and Jake Sully ICU each other for the first time. The humans are expelled from Pandora, and Jake's consciousness is transferred to his Navi body via the Tree of Souls, mirroring the opening shot of the movie, his Navi eye opens. So this brings us to the second film, Avatar, The Way of Water. This film catches up with the Sully family several years after this. Jake and Atiri now have three biological Navi children, their oldest son, Atayam, their second son, Loak, and their daughter, Tuktiri, aka Tuk. They have an adopted human son, Miles Spider Socorro, a teenager who was born on Hell's Gate, the base from the first film. They also have an adopted Navi teenage daughter, Kiri Sigourney Weaver, playing this teenager reboot with some of the memories of Grace. Dad, I know you think I'm crazy, but I feel her. I hear her heartbeat. So close. So some weird stuff is going on here, especially when you consider that they're also bringing back Stephen Lang as Gorich, who has been resurrected by the RDA as a recombinant. These are new avatars embedded with the memories of humans. The same goes for Matt Gerald's character, who died in the 2009 film, but is returning as the recombinant Corporal Lyle Wainfleet. But it sounds like the RDA is using a technological process, their form of playing God, whereas Kiri seems to be more of a natural reincarnation via the Awa, something Grace actually hinted at in the 2009 film. It's a network. It's a global network and the Navi can access it. They can upload and download data. 
memories. The Way of Water will feature Jake and Atiri and their family relocating to the Metkayina Ocean Clan of Pandora, which is led by Tonawari and his wife Ronal, who's played by Kate Winslet. These aquatic navi have adaptations of flatter arms to paddle with and thicker, more muscular tails for steering underwater. Edie Falco is also joining the cast playing General Francis Ardmore, the RDA commander. I have not seen the film yet, but it does look like it's going to center around a custody dispute over Spider while deepening the spiritual lore over how souls are passed through nature. Remember though, while the Ewa is considered the seeds of the sacred tree by the Navi, Ewa herself is a Navi goddess, a deity that did not originate on Pandora. Pandora itself is a moon orbiting the gas giant of Polyphemus in the system of Alpha Centauri A. Pandora is rich in unobtainium, and in fact, the Aramelusin floating mountain's magnetic field may actually be caused by unobtainium deposits. By the way, unobtainium is a real-world engineering joke that comes up as a kind of trope in sci-fi, like in the 2003 movie Decor. James Cameron also hinted at a similar hypothetical miracle metal in his Terminator films, a room-temperature superconductor that was used to create Skynet. Well, you know what, Christopher? I'll give it to you. That <laughs> might have been a little bit better than what I would have been able to pull off. And he even covered both movies. He did, with a wonderful little insertion about unobtainium, which I was a little <laughs> upset about because the first time I heard it, I was like, yo, 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 wasn't that the crap from the core? And then, of course, he tied it together, and I was like, dang, Navi, I thought I had something to add. I could do a much quicker version of that really quickly. It's three film titles. It's called The Trinity, and it's based on Kevin Costner's work. It is Dances with Wolves, Waterworld, and then The Smurfs. That is this film to a T. If you've seen any of those three, you've seen this film. In my research, I was actually shocked because Sigourney Weaver made this comment for the first movie that this is this is unlike any story that's ever been told before. And I think it was Little Light Studios. They did an LED on it. And they were like, really? And they did a bunch of side-by-sides with Ferngolly in the first movie. And they're the exact same scene. Like, I, I've seen both. And I'm like, this is kind of like Ferngolly. But there was like at least 10 separate scenes that mirrored the old cartoon. I was like, I was way worse than I thought. Are you serious? <laughs> oh yeah. I- I'll send it to you. No, I don't want to watch it. <laughs> I-, I-, I want to live in my state of delusion. So since we've gotten this far, what did you think about it, Jason? Since you seem like you might have the most positive <laughs> feedback between the three of us, we'll let you start. The Operation Red Pill Bucket of Popcorn Rating System. Trademark pending. Did we mm. give it an empty bucket, a half bucket, a full bucket, or a buttery bucket? I know Drew is not partial to the buttery bucket, you know, <laughs> uh, motif. I, I understand that. We covered that in the last one. Should we make it an ice cream bucket instead of a buttery bucket since Drew's on the show? You know, let's do I don't that. Even know. It wouldn't <laughs> even get that. This one, I'd have to give it a solid half bucket. And it's really because the, the rewatch value on this, I'm I'm not really intrigued, interested to go back and watch it again. And if I do, I fast forward just to certain parts. The entire story is not something that interests me. I love the visuals. Uh, I, I love some of the the fantastical elements to the Avatar world, you know, to basically Pandora. But as a whole, with the story and where it goes and investing three hours of my life into it, I'm like, nah, you're not holding me. Not in the least. It's really the action scenes where I'm like, okay, it's kind of cool. We could have like three hours of just this. This this would be dope. But all the other stuff annoys me. And not to be long winded, but the Natiri character actually annoyed me. 
like Zoe Zaldana was not the saving grace for this film for me. Mm-mm. And she's normally yep. running around just whining the entire time. Yeah. You said, yeah, dude, this is a solid half bucket for me. Half bucket. Okay. Yep. What, what about you, Drew? Uh, as an Australian, I'm legally bound to say because it's a film starring Sam Worthington. It is a full buttery bucket and I love the film and it's all it has done. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. Um, I'd have to give it a, a half bucket. I'm with you, Jason. It's visually, it's amazing. The technology which has made that world come to life is just stunning. But it's the monotonous storyline in between the action scenes, which drag on way too long. I was like half expecting him to go into like a, a dry cleaners and wash his loincloth and stuff and stand there waiting <laughs> for the, the spin cycle to finish. There was just these boring extended periods of time in between the action, which really ruined it for me. Um, yeah, Natiri kind of changed a lot from the previous film. She was this badass um, warrior goddess, princess queen of this tribe, and now she was just the nagging wife and mother in this one. So, I don't know. It just it deviated away from what the characters were established in the previous film, and it didn't hold my attention for something that goes for three hours. It did not hold my attention. My biggest problem with, with Natiri is that I felt like she she betrayed the trust that we that she had earned from the first film as like the like you put it you know the, the warrior princess the mother all of that and she betrays the whole idea of being a good mother not just to her own brood but to this whole other species with spider that she took in and was willing to kill him and and supposed grief i'm like ah, i can't buy that that's where we're going with this and nobody apologizes for it nobody goes hey, i'm sorry I know you, nobody went to Spider and apologized, was like, hey, I'm sorry. I know you're part of the group. Got a little carried up. You know, my son had just died. It was a little action. Just <laughs> the hormones were going. No, nah, they just straight betrayed Spider. I was like, oh, that's a bad look and message. Mm hmm. Yeah. What about you, Christopher? What would you give it? I would give it an empty bucket. Whoa. I couldn't stand any of it. In, in the visuals, like it, at least for the first one, the, the, um, the the forest had like depth, right? It was dark and light, and and I don't know. It it, it seemed more appealing. This was just like you could you could look at a brochure from Bora Bora and get a pretty good on idea on everything that's in the way of water. And it it, it was beautiful, but but like you guys were saying, I had the same type of issues. Like we don't need to see you swim the entire way, you know. We're it's it's just such a waste of time. I, I kept thinking, uh, what was it Dory from Finding Nemo? She's like, just keep swimming. Just I'm like, stop, stop swimming. And then because I'm already in, you know, this movie, I'm like, and you can't talk to whales. Stop. You think you can do these things, but you can't do them. Yeah, That's I think funny. I think every possible, like all of the the things that should have set this movie apart were absolutely abused. Like it was beautiful, but then you, you drug it out too long to where everyone's like, why am I still looking at this? And there was nothing that happened in the storyline that couldn't have been summed up in the first 10 minutes of the next film. Like there's almost no progress whatsoever. It, it a waste, a waste of three hours, empty bucket. Hmm. Now, Christopher, did it, did it make you feel a bit uneasy that you sat there watching something for three hours, which is essentially all about the sun and being at the beach? As a ginger, 
that's very traumatic for me. I can't have that kind of sunlight <laughs> and time in the ocean for that long. It's just going to be not good for my complexion. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't necessarily have have that issue, but I'm not. I'm not a huge beach person anyway. Like not necessarily just because of the sun, but just like the water thing isn't my jam. And maybe that's the issue. I know Jason doesn't like the water either. Maybe we just hate water, and that's that was this movie. So maybe that's the problem. <laughs> After this movie, I've got new reasons for why I don't like water. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later. <laughs> okay. Okay. So now that we were able to get that off of our chest, I think we can get into the the mid ground and, and some of the thematic elements. Uh, I know you were excited about this when we pitched the idea. Do you you want to start this one off, Drew? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll like to go through a couple of the names and the meanings behind them just quickly because I think it really sets the tone for who the characters are. And the writing around the names is so deliberate. And I think it's one of those extra levels of programming within the storyline and characters that people just skim over and don't realise. So Jake Sully, who's our main protagonist in these films, Jake is a boy's name in Hebrew origin, which means supplanter of Jacob. Sully is in French origin means stain. So in a roundabout way, Jake is a supplanter into the Navi Yet through both his deceptions against mankind and his marriage and reproduction with, with Natiri, leaves a stain on both his genetics and the genetics of the Navi species. So he's this character is literally supplanted into that culture as a spy, which we know from the first film. Good gosh. Okay. And furthermore, Jacob <laughs> was a prominent patriarch in the Israel tribes of the Old Testament, and Esau was his twin brother. Jake is a twin in these films. So we've literally oh. got the writer taking biblical templates and pasting them into this film. I know I I'm jumping the gun a little bit on that, but that is within it. No, my mind was blown with the with the name reveal. Now you done switch gears on me to hit me with this. Good night. <laughs> uh, next up, you've got Natiri. So she's our female lead, the, the love interest of Jake. In ancient Egypt, it's Net-Tia, which is meaning a god of sacred nature, which kind of applies to these this race of beings that live in harmonious um, symbiosis with this planet of Pandora. In Indian dialects, it means goddess-warrior, which again plays into the character's format. But within the film itself, and in the Na'vi language, her name means she who seeks spirits. And who does she find? Essentially, a white guy running around in the jungle. She finds a spirit. Like native people thought white people coming to Australia were ghosts and he's a literal spirit that is found. Uh, next up, you got Miles, uh, which is our general, um, Kortish. Miles is Latin for soldier, pretty basic. He's the soldier, the bad guy in this. And then we have Kiri and Kiri is this character, which is this um, reborn avatar that's got some kind of sentience without having a person's uh mind uploaded into it. It's a bit of a mystery around it. We can get into that later. But it's debated whether this name is actually Maori or Aboriginal origin. This is exciting for me because it's the first time I've seen an Indigenous name in cinema like this. Okay. So both variations of the Maori and the Aboriginal, it means bark, skin, or outer covering, which is interesting because Kiri's avatar body was born through immaculate conception and in some form of sense is a outer covering to the metaphysical nature of her creation. Gee whiz. Wow. You got all of that just from the names. <laughs> Dude, that's wild. So is there, and, and I don't know, 
is there ever a movie that doesn't have this component where the names kind of embody the 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 story of the movie? Like, have you run into nine the, like- out of nine out of ten times? It's always bang on. There's at least two or three characters, and it's always usually that the main protagonist and um, the the love interest that they're, they're centered around. It's it's so bizarre. It needs its own kind of terminology around it because I keep finding it every single film. You know what? Uh, the first time I ever got introduced to that that concept, my brother-in-law was telling me, uh, and he used to work on film sets, but he was like, you should really pay attention to the names of characters. And I think at the point we were watching uh, House of Cards. And so he was like, take Frank Underwood. And I was like, yeah, what about him? And he was like, you know what he acts like in the film? I mean, in the, in the show. And I was like, yeah, well, his name is Underwood. Like everybody's under the wood. I was like, dude, shut up. You're not, is this for real? And he's like, yeah, there's a reason they named them what they named them. Like, these are not arbitrary names that that, that are, are picked for a character. It's normally designed to tell you some key component of, of, of their personality and of who they are and how it relates to the storyline as a whole. I was like, nah, I'm not believing that. They just called him Francis Underwood because they just needed a name. But it's stuck with me. And as I've gone through, I've listened to you and, and done some of my own research. It's really been crazy to see how much information is embedded just in the name of a character and how much of that just goes right over our head as an audience. Mm-hmm. Right. Not well, even paying attention to it. I thought about it for this one, but I was like, there's no way. Cause I was doing some research about, you know, like Pyacon, the, uh, um, the Tolkien or Tolkien or whatever they're called. I was like, there's no way the, and this is really, really white of me, but I was like, go, these, go aren't, go these aren't real names, right? Like they just picked them because they sounded good, you know, to fit the movie. Like there's, <laughs> there's no way they're real names. And I, I, I apologize anyone that's offended is listening to this, but the, that was my thought. So it's incredibly fast. Put your hand down, Jason. I'm offended for all the non-white people. <laughs> yeah, so I'm standing collectively offended. <laughs> but no, it's it's super cool that you were able to find that. Yeah, that was dope. Yeah, it's um a lot of Polynesian names and uh, mythology were in, in this film that were represented, which is quite fascinating. But. I think like the the main message that we get from the surface level of this film at least is it's kind of that story of the the soldier who renounces his ways he falls in love with the the noble savage and then they're connected to nature and he follows their their lifestyle and it becomes a part of the tribe and then helps them rebel the the invaders that's that story it's dances with wolves like I said before mm-hmm. it's a Kevin Costner film with a blue t- a hue to it and that's what they've <laughs> sold to us yeah yeah i i found it was difficult because i disliked this movie so much to care a lot about this the the mid-ground themes i'm like if i don't care about the whole movie as a whole (laughs) then these themes in between are just are just kind of annoying but um from what i saw and, and and then doing some research uh i think it's interesting that they there's a continual motif here of trying to view the world through 
someone else's eyes, at least a little bit more than the first one. Cause you know, um, Jake is now supposed to see the world through the eyes of his children. Miles is supposed to see the world through the eyes of a father. Um, we're supposed to see, uh, Awa through the eyes of Kiri. Like there's all these, these subtle nods to alter your perception by, you know, borrowing someone else's. And it really had me thinking, cause I was like, well, if, are they just teaching a basic principle? You know, what is it? Um, uh, who was it? Eleanor Roosevelt that made the statement that we don't have enough time to make all of the mistakes on our own. So we need to learn from other people. You know, yeah. so I was like, is it just a basic principle they're teaching or are they suggesting that there is a protect, a particular set of eyes that we should be seeing the world through? That was a little bit troubling for me. Well, there's like a 45 minute stretch of that in this film where you have Jake and his family, which are the the, the rainforest tribe, and they went to go live with the water tribe. And there was 45 minutes of learning how to swim. So it's <laughs> seeing the world through someone else's eyes that are the same people, essentially. Right, right. And learning yeah. from them. A lot of that was was weird. Not then, once like, did they tell them to not eat and wait 30 minutes before swimming in case you get a stitch. <laughs> that was never communicated. And there was, there was like no understanding either. Like these people had, had never gone swimming like this. And they're like, why, why are you coming up for air? It was so, so weird. I noticed there was a, a, a huge emphasis um, about being useless eaters. And, and you guys will have to back me up. I'm not sure um, where I stand on this exactly. But as, you know, as the Sollies... In, um, you know, we're getting trained to to be part of the 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 tribe. the The chief made the statement. You know, hey, you're going to help them because they're we don't want them to um, take on the shame of being useless. Like it seemed like a, a, a very emphatic statement. And I, I get that there's a principle that you know, if you don't work, you don't eat. But useless eaters is a specific term. Um, you know, that's used for the lay. And I, I, I couldn't help but wonder if there was a, a subtle kind of, what would it be, Marxist, socialist kind of idea implanted there. Well, Jake he has the conversation with his sons that we have to lift our weight here. We have to, we have to pull, our, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and help out. Like we, we learn and you learn fast. It's that idea of the being part of the community and, giving back to the collective. So it's very Marxist in its terminology around that. Right. And if you don't contribute, then you're useless and, and you might as well be dead or will be dead, you know, if we're talking about population control. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, another thing, just because we see, we know that Disney is consistently trying to attack the, the family model. I'm not sure how to place this whole, like, there's almost no rules to family anymore in this film. So you have Solly, who's a, who's a hybrid and he, he gets united with Natiri and, and that's cool. And then they have children, but then they have an adopted children. That's a whole human and his dad isn't even really alive. And, but there's this weird idea that we're all family. And then you have uh Kiri who's here by immaculate conception and she's part of the family. And I'm like, what does that do for like the actual idea of family? Like we can make it whatever we want versus, you know, our family helps us make 
or, or helps make us who we are. Like it, it just seemed very wishy-washy. And I, I, I wasn't sure exactly what they were communicating, but it, it didn't, it didn't set right with me. Yeah. I, I had an equal problem with that. I mean, okay. it seemed like it, it was all combined together. And, yeah. uh, that, that also is what bothered me later in the film when there's a betrayal. Okay. Okay. You know, if they were part of the family, then, then, then what is it and what makes you family? Okay. And you can't, you can't miss out on the fact that you're also dealing with a ton of hybrids. Right. So anything could be really be grafted in at any point. And so it's not like a strict, um, more, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not like necessarily a, a, a homogenous mixture of, of species. It's it's really an admixture of different things. Anything goes. Okay. Which okay, we're we're working in Pandora world. I I can kind of accept that. But as soon as like what you were talking about earlier, mirror neurons are firing. As soon as the subconscious part of my brain is picking up all this information and assimilating it, it's immediately extracted and then reapplied in the real world. And we live in a culture that is redefining barriers all across the board. Mm-hmm. So family can be what you make it. To a degree, I understand that. But then it opens up, no pun intended, Pandora's box. If there are, <laughs> if, if there's no barriers, no guidelines, no restrictions whatsoever. You know, it used to be we're just dealing with a male and a, and a female producing an offspring and now you have a family then we switch to well you can have male male or female female and they can adopt that's what i was just about to say jason sorry to interrupt you it's the sci-fi futuristic attempt at having modern family the tv show they've got mike sully who's the mixed race couple He's got the adopted kid, Spider, whose father could have been the guy that ran out for a pack of cigarettes. They're applying these <laughs> modern day, <laughs> they're applying modern day character templates from sitcoms onto a science fiction world. That's hilarious. I'm never going to look at Spider and say, <laughs> I feel, and I feel like I'm stereotyping him, but it, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got all of that and then you can add on to it and ratchet it up. We, we have the sci-fi version. So if we've been making these changes all along and then there's an interspeciation that's happening between human and Navi, you can make it whatever you want, baby. The sky's the limit. That has dangerous implications in a world that's trying through CERN to break open the, the dimensional divide, welcome in whatever entities come through that divide. You got the Catholic Church looking on top of Mount Graham for whatever's supposed to be coming from outer space. And we're, we're, we are ready to rock and roll. That has nothing to do with the transhumanist movement to redefine humanity and changing us from the inside out. But hey, family's what you make it. I think that's a dangerous concept, especially if you're not starting from a premise of family is what God made it first. So within the Mm. guidelines and confines of what he decides is okay based on his original design, if we're not doing that and we're letting man run the show, anything and everything goes. And that that concept is so dangerous, but it's also so prevalent and pervasive within society. Like any and everything goes. That always sounds fun at the beginning because we normally have this this restricted, ironically, we normally have a restricted view of any and everything goes. (laughs) Right? It's It's a weird paradox. 
You can do whatever you want. Yes. That means this thing that I've been wanting to do, I can do. No, it also means this other stuff that you didn't want to do is now available. Like, wait, hold up. Wait a minute. That's like when somebody's like, hey, you can have sex with anyone. Yes. Wait, anyone? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like anyone. Define anyone's. I mean, anyone's. Are we talking people? Sure. Fish? I never thought about that. That's why I don't like to make my sex with fish. That doesn't really turn out too well. Then you got, you know, sheep. What about non-humans? You're like, wait, what? What is going on here? I thought we was just having sex with anyone and anyone was restricted to, to them. <laughs> them right there. It's like this full, it's a perspective limitation because we see things so limited and we're normally dealing with entities that have a dimensional benefit. You know, they're dealing with a higher dimensional understanding and awareness of reality that when you're dealing with a question in a one dimensional framework that applies on a four dimensional plane, you're not prepared for the fallout if you're only thinking one dimensionally. This is the horrifying thing I find with the character development and relationships we see in that family. It's very obvious to me, at least, that Spider and Kiri have some kind of a, a romantic relationship blossoming between the two. They flirt a little bit. I was wondering about that. <laughs> and they're very protective of one another. It's one yeah. thing to have Jake, who's in an avatar's body, to have a relationship in a family. But Spider's completely human without an avatar. He doesn't have the right plumbing for this to work. What I couldn't figure out hmm. is, are they brother-sister or are they dating? Because their their relationship seems to have a both-s component to it. Yeah, because Jake even says at the end, you know, a son lost, a son gained. So he's yeah. in that close family, but they're a little bit closer over it's, here. It's screaming midday Man. movie where the, the stepbrother kind of has a relationship with the daughter and things go awry. That's what it's feeling like for the the rest of this film franchise anyway. Yeah. It's it's odd. Yeah, it was worse than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> um we we have ideas of evil white colonist. I mean kind of like what you were saying Drew. I I can't remember specifically because there's so many hours attached to this thing, but I don't think anyone that worked for the RDA was of melanin rich, right? Like were they all melanin deficient? I think so. I, I yeah. think there might have been. On this one, yeah. I think in the first one, uh, quite a few brothers died in the forest, but uh, this one, I didn't see any. <laughs> they got smarter. You, but you should yeah, be they didn't come back. offended, Jason. Yeah. No, no. You, I was what? offended that they no. showed up in the very first one. I'm like, what are you doing on a totally different planet? <laughs> They're on the spaceship form. in orbit. Oh, hell no. Exactly. I ain't doing this. Exactly. <laughs> you should know none of this works well. Transatlantic wasn't good. You're telling me transgalactic is going to work out better? <laughs> nah, bro. Somebody should have called that one. I don't think That's any of the funny. spaceships were called the Armistad, so it's not that on, on the nose. <laughs> we, we don't know. We didn't get to see the other side of the spaceship. We didn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were in cryostasis. That's funny. What were you going to say, Christopher? I should be offended by <laughs> Oh, because you're always pushing for like equal representation, right? When appropriate, Christopher. When, no, when appropriate. That's not true. You have wanted equal <laughs> representation in some pretty shady situations. So, so I'm surprised it doesn't show up here. <laughs> Touche. I'm really thinking back to whatever episode we did where we were talking about orphan trains. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You, you were explaining that, and I was like, wait a minute. Well, they have black babies on there. 
Because I want to make sure we have fair representation <laughs> right. in the orphan trade. <laughs> Touche, dude. Uh, that's uh, funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> and then the last thing that I have just for the, for the mid-ground would be the the green gospel, right? We have to take care of the planet. The whole reason they're in this predicament is because what did Jake say in the first one? They killed their mother. And it's hmm. it's weird. And, and oh, um, there's there's three rules or three laws when it comes to to Awa. Uh, let's see if I can remember what they are. It's uh, don't put stone upon stone. Uh, don't use the metals from the earth. And then there's a third one. But I thought it was interesting because it fits the same type of of kind of religious legalism that we see in the world today. Because we we had the um, the Georgia Guidestones and then they got taken down. And then we had the, the 10 climate commandments that they actually went to the top of Mount Sinai, the Pope and whoever else was there to put them together. So there's these weird like sets of rules that are attached to taking care of, of the planet. And it's, I don't know, it's really weird, but definitely seen repeated in, in this movie. It was so much so that they had to actively have whales as one of the main themes of this film. It's almost like to the point where I was expecting the Greenpeace vessel to come up and ram one of the, the military ships to try and stop them. <laughs> I'm waiting for protesters to be there to try and save the whales. It seemed like the 90s. It had a lot of 90s themes in it of what the, the green movement was and is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really designed, though, to, to turn public opinion against humanity. Because when you when you watch this film, it's the human beings that are destroying the peace and serenity through their greed. You know, not only are they chasing down and breaking up this family of of uh, super intelligent, well like species, but they're a doing diverse it. family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're <laughs> doing it just to extract this 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 uh, substance from the brain of the well that is supposed to cause. Uh, anti-aging, it's supposed to contain anti-aging properties, right? So essentially it will grant immortality. And it's mm-hmm. just a, a small portion of this, which had me thinking a bit of adrenochrome. I mean, it had a, an adrenochrome-esque component to it. You know, you're you're completely sabotaging and torturing and murdering this species just so you can extract this small fluid that benefits you and keeps you going. Hey, hey, hey! Don't be stealing my notes, man. Come my on. My bad, my bad, bro. I saw a couple things. <laughs> I said you could. I said you could copy my homework, but make it a little bit different. Oh, that's. But funny. to bring bring it back a little bit from that esoteric, because we're starting to verge onto the ideas of biblical references and the spiritual messaging of this. But if we go back to the mid ground, it's not just about the green agenda. It almost has elements of the American Empire how the American empire has gone out into the world in the past 20 years or 40 years, even it has a lot of themes of going into a foreign country and taking their resources. It's almost reminiscent of Vietnam and the rubber trade, Afghanistan and the poppy trade, um, the Congo with cobalt um, and even Iraq with oil. It's reminiscent of this military power going into a less sophisticated, technolo- less technologically advanced people and taking their resources. It's almost telling that story of a um, a Vietnam type of guerrilla warfare conflict at the same time. It is. And Jason and I talked about this just, just the other day. It's interesting how 
we we see this repeated all the time, but it's specifically the parasite class or the elites or you know whatever you want to call them. They're the ones perpetrating this, but then they turn around and blame human nature or humanity. And I I think Ryan Dean made this point um, in in one of his episodes. It was just a passing idea, but I I really I really latched onto it because I think it's an issue. Is there is a difference between the people of a government and the government themselves. But too many times, you know, we'll say that, oh, well, we went to war or we did this. And Ryan was like, I didn't do that. You know, we we need to to distinguish because even the 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 raping of the planet or whatever, like the overuse of the resources, like what what um uh what proletariat do you know is mass consuming, you know, the world's resources. Like we, we aren't doing that. No, oh, I cut down a tree every day. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's these massive corporations and government entities that are controlling all of that. The use of oil, like all of it is controlled and all, you know, like, what was it? George Carlin. It's a, it's a group or whatever. It's a private club and you aren't a part of it. But because we've been conditioned to not distinguish us from that group, they are, effectively able to put the guilt of that on us because we're not taking the time to distinguish because it's, it's the same thing with avatar. Like it's not normal people. It's the, the RDA. What is it? The resource development. Um, oh, I put it somewhere in the notes. Association. Uh, no. Cause I kept saying that administration. That's what it is. Yeah. So it's not humanity. It's this particular, you know, organization, but we all have to pay the price. We all have to share the load of, of the the crap that the elites are doing. It, it's it's I crazy. Think, I think that's the creepy thing about government or the elites in general, that a government, like the US intervention in the Middle East, it wasn't the American people that did it. It was a an entity without body or form that had the ability to think and get others to do its bidding. That in itself sounds like a parasite, getting it mm. to do its will. It's very- right. um, very almost esoteric in that in itself. It's almost like a possession. People are doing things they don't necessarily want to do, but the powers that be are telling them to, and they have to. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's why the conditioning is so important. Because most of the people probably wouldn't go along with this full tilt and boogie if they understood the implications. But mm-hmm. subtly entering and entering into an environment, you know, going into entertainment, having your mind turned off, having your mirror neurons firing, being put into a catatonic state, and then having this propaganda, this ideas disseminating, just thrown at you, getting slimed almost for three straight hours of just programming. Mm-hmm. Right. And then all of a sudden you come out and you're like, yeah, yeah, you feel a little bit different. You're thinking a little bit different. And even if you don't recognize it consciously, the subconscious mind has assimilated all of those important sub uh, embedded and subliminal messaging that's contained in these films. And it's wild because the stuff is not accidental. I mean, it took us a while just to pull apart some of these things. And I'm sure we haven't covered all of it. We haven't even hmm. got to, to level three yet. And that's the but, fun one. Right. But I, I mean, we're just, just dealing with the names of the characters has got all of this embedded meaning. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, a, um, I don't want to call it a smorgasbord, 
But I would say it's really a compressed situation that you get into um, when you go and see a film. And the crazy thing is you can take in when, when something's compressed, it allows for massive amounts of, say, with information, massive amounts of information to be transmitted and communicated in small packets, small amounts of time. But then when that stuff gets unpacked, you still get all the benefits of all that information. Right. And the subconscious is doing that. Mm-hmm. It's unpacking it, whether we're aware of it or not. That's that's scary. It's like a cliff bar. It's so calorie dense in such a small package that you're getting about five meals out of it. Right. <laughs> right. But yeah. all you wanted was a snack. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we were just going to chill. I didn't want five meals. Do I look fatter? Doesn't like I put on some thought weight. <laughs> some thought weight. Yeah. You look great, Jason. You look great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I've been trying to control my thinking. You know, I have a, a thought deficit that I'm working from. Burning off the useless thoughts. <laughs> All right. Do you Duck think sales will help with that? <laughs> right? It's a bunch of empty calories, so those don't count. That's funny. I wonder if we like went into our like feeding our minds. Well, I mean, a lot of people don't feed their bodies very well either, but with the same kind of idea, you know what I mean? Like this yeah. probably isn't good to be feeding my mind. This, I, I I need to do something to work off some of this nonsense that I've been, you know, tapping into over and over. That That's interesting. Ironically, my brain kind of works like that. Okay. You know, there are certain things I'm like, mm, you just spent two hours looking at stupid stuff. You really need to compensate and next time, don't spend two hours. But it was Duck Tales. <laughs> like, I mean, come on, woohoo! You get, I mean, when they hit you with the woohoo, you gotta that's stay all you a little need? bit longer. That's that's your argument. Like, it's why did you wait tales. two hours? So <laughs> it's cleansed his palate, though, hasn't it? All he can remember is the woohoo. That's it. <laughs> the, the the funny thing about Duck Tales is that I've actually been blown away at how much stuff is in it. That's one of the reasons I keep talking about it because DuckTales should be presumably innocent, right? Mm-hmm. Like we all remember the 90s version. You can see as soon as we hit you with the woohoo, you're like, yeah, woohoo. Man, the <laughs> new DuckTales is off the chain. It has got so much condensed esoteric information. I'm just, most of the time, I'm just sitting there flabbergasted like you've got to be there's no way they could be this outrageous and this up up front about it and then i watch another episode i'm like they are they're definitely this up front about it this is yeah. wild Three it even gets scary it. it even gets scary when you reflect on like we we're talking about earlier with televisions being a, a means to brainwash manipulate people's thinking if that's using crystalline technology and your pineal gland is a crystallized gland between your behind your eyes in the center of your head could literally be transmitting data from one crystal to another interesting that's a wild idea that's that's gonna make indiana jones and the crystal skull a little bit more unnerving Yeah, you mean beyond? Never. We don't need to do another movie <laughs> breakdown. <laughs> no, not a video. Uh, so, getting back to this one, are, are we ready to go into the the background story, of the spiritual messaging? Oh, finally. let's do it. Finally, I've been waiting for that one. Been chomping at the bit over here. <laughs> the spiritual messaging in this one is a lot like you know a lot of the other ones that we've done, and it's embedded with a Gnostic inversion. 
And for those unfamiliar with the term, Gnostic means to know or knowledge. And the problem with Gnosticism is that it, it, it's an idea that can't really stand on its own. It's always attached to another belief system. So it perverts it or it inverts it um, into another religious idea, which I think is really interesting. Um, many of the movies that we've broke down carry a Gnostic inversion of Christianity specifically. So if you imagine for a second that Satan you know, the bad guy, he's the guy telling the story of the events that happened in the Bible. And that's essentially what the, the Christian Gnostics believe. That Satan, um, Satan or Lucifer is the good guy and God is the bad guy. And then somehow Jesus kind of bounces back and forth. You know, he plays both sides a little bit. And from the very onset, of the Avatar franchise, we see specific intentional inversion at the core of the story. Apparently, James Cameron chose the name of the planet deity, Awa, because it's a reverse of Yahweh. That's insane. And I immediately have to go to, to Aleister Crowley, right? Because he taught that thinking backwards and speaking backwards is essential in practicing magic. And here we have the very name of God reversed as the planet deity in this movie. So that's, that's insane. So well, even the role of humanity in this film, Christopher, is the inversion where we know through scriptural teachings that the, the fallen ones arrived and the humans were at the behest of these all-powerful beings. This time around, it's humans that are coming down. They are still short in stature, but the sky people are depicted as demons so much they're even called demons by the Navi. And we That's see that there's the genetic manipulation of the Navi people to create their avatars and their recombinants. So it's their own idea of humanity being presented as the demonic entities so much so that in this second film when humanity arrives to reclaim pandora when the ships begin to land and their afterburners eject the last of the fuel it incinerates the area in which they land on very reminiscent of a an end times imagery of the the fire cleansing the earth instead of water interesting man i missed a lot of stuff <laughs> Yeah, it completely changes. And that that goes along with, you know, seeing things from through different eyes. Right. And also yeah. combining the fact, again, that humanity is the plague. Humanity is the problem. You know, we saw that same messaging, like with movies like Godzilla. You know, mm -hmm. if we just could return the, the, the we could return the planet back to the Titans, they'll restore order. Right. If, if the sky people did not come here and bring all of their chaos, then we under under Iwas would be able to maintain complete balance and harmony. And so the the subtle messaging is that humanity is bringing an imbalance and it needs to be corrected. Now, even the Navi. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Even go ahead. the even the Navi people recognize that when they say my um, Sully's children, they've got. Five fingers, uh, four fingers and a thumb, because the Navi have three and they have the extra finger showing they have demon blood air quotes. Well, what do we exactly. see through First Nations people of giants, six fingers exactly. or seven fingers? Exactly. That was one of the things I was thinking about. You know, it's funny, like 
this was the only redeeming factor for me of the film was just dealing with the spiritual messaging in it because it was so blatant. Mm -hmm. You know, it it was why it kind of made it exciting for me. I'm like, Oh, I got something I can latch onto. This is great. We'll have a little bit of action, but I'm going to see what other esoteric (laughs) information and satanic ideas are you seeding into my mind, Mr. Cameron? Because it, it was intentional. I mean, he talked about in the first movie that he was using all of the special effects as a Trojan horse to implant these other ideas. I th- even think he went so far to say that if people realized there was a like a green movement or ideal in this movie, that it would cost him half the the, bo- the box office or whatever. And and he beyond just Gnosticism, I think that he's he's tried to cram like this ecumenical idea of, you know, all the religions are good, you know, bring everybody together. And I actually have a clip of an interview where he's talking to a lady about that. When and they're there and they're there by design. They're not accidental. All the Christian mythology is there. The Buddhist, the Buddhist principles are there. Then you come up with the Egyptian mythology. So I don't know. I mean, I know that you, you could not have done this without a conscious understanding of many of these principles. But in terms of the ecumenicism of it and yeah, the universality yeah. of these principles, I, I thought was amazing. I wanted that environmental theme in there. I wanted those kind of spiritual themes in there. So the first part of the clip messed up a little bit, but the, you get the, the the gist of it. I wanted to hear the rest of the clip. Anyone <laughs> would think he's an adept at that kind of secret knowledge, wouldn't you? The amount of things he's throwing into these films. And it's not just this film. All his films have that level of it. Yeah, I, I don't think it's just this film at all, which makes me wonder more about James Cameron. Because as well, much as we're talking about Avatar, you find a, you find a lot of this back with Terminator. Mm-hmm. And if Terminator is tied to the to the Matrix, which the lady who I guess apparently created the original story sued the the uh, the, the, the studios over that that very idea that she owned intellectual property to both and that they're one integrated story. Hmm. Then it really has got to make you wonder, dude. What yeah. are you trying to teach us? Hmm. And. I love, like, because it's somebody else saying it and not us, but to have this much knowledge, it doesn't happen accidentally. You have to have a comprehensive understanding of whatever religions you're distorting or whatever ideals in order to implant them in the movie. Like, a lot of people think that we're reaching or we're making connections that aren't there, and we're like, no, it's it has to be intentional. Look at how specific it is. Well, here's the thing, though. It's one thing if you have private knowledge and information on this, but consider this, bro. If you are involved in, in occult practices, if you open up yourself to spiritual influences, then you can literally have spirit guides that have this information right through you. And you don't have to be the container of that information. Yeah. You don't necessarily have to be adept or be a guru in it. You just have to open yourself up to spiritual entities Make the deal, you know, hey, I'll give you the play. If you'll give me the fame, I'll I'll do the movie. Not mm-hmm. saying that James Cameron did that, but that it's another thing to really consider. Well, that, that, because there are people that do this. They just open themselves up and say, hey, I'm a vessel. You know, you can channel through me. I'll make the deal. If you'll give me fame, I'll put out the message. 
I I think that happened somewhere in this movie, but it's it's a it's a little bit later in my notes, so we can get to that. But I I I, I think that part of it w- did happen through or without the understanding of James Cameron. And you, you can let me know when we get there. You know, I give an example of something I think is deliberate on James Cameron's part. And we have to kind of go back a little bit to the elements of the first film. The helicopter gunships that are in these films are, are called Scorpions. And you remember one of our characters saying, Scorpion group, um, have at it, open fire. So I link this back to Revelation 9.10, but I'm going to describe the elements of what Revelation 9.10 means to me. John described a demonic horde or of similar to a locust having tails sting, that sting like a scorpion, but also like horses with crowns, human faces and hair, lion's teeth, iron armor, and roaring noises. I interpret this and compare this image to the stereotypical modern-day attack helicopter. A front appearing somewhat like an insect's eyes, prominent upwards curving tail, loud noises, and with teeth painted on the front for effect. The effects of these creatures, however, far more often than not, line up with demonic and spiritual interpretations of war machines. Now, let's look at Revelation 9.10. They have tails and sting like scorpions, and their power is to hurt people five months later in their tails. And how long is Mike Sully out in the population with the Na'vi for undercover? Five months, while the helicopters are still attacking the Na'vi people throughout that time. Wow. So he's okay. named a helicopter gunship, which links into that scriptural doctrine around a demonic horde flying around hurting people for five months. That's what the helicopter gunships do while Mike is engaged. In, oh, Mike Sully, that's the wrong, that's Monsters, Inc. <laughs> Where Jake Sully <laughs> is in the, uh, the forest with the Na'vi. They're being hunted down and attacked by these, these scorpions for five months. He's even got the time frame in this. Hey, but check this out, Drew, because that, that's wild. But now you got me thinking Uh, that part in Revelation actually deals with uh, the abyss, Abaddon opening the the abyss being open. And these are the things that come out of it. If we're talking about that in parallel to the sky people, think about these scorpions come out of the sky people coming down and that portal or whatever being open. This is what comes out, which really then kind of makes it a lot scarier with the emphasis on what the human beings really represent. I mean, that really ties them to being demonic from the perspective of the Navi, the Navi. And I'm, 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 I'm real glad that you, you tied it to revelation. Cause I, I have an idea in here that seems kind of thin, but that, that kind of helps support it. So as I was going into this, the first thing, uh, that, that stuck out to me was the the Satan archetype. So there was the beast from the deep who had been ac- exiled for acts of war and he didn't actually fight the war, but it, uh, was it his name? Uh, Piacon. He convinced the other whales or the other Tulkun to fight. And, and because of this, he was outcast. You know, and the Bible even says this, uh, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And there's this whole story about, you know, before the first songs and all of that and, and saying that, uh, Piacon is a killer. Like it, 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 the, they talk about it the same way, um, that the, the Bible kind of references Satan. So I was like, okay, so if Satan or Lucifer more, I guess more specifically, because he was the one that, that was cast out, um, 
And I make that distinction because in Gnosticism, a lot of times they hold him as two different people. Not that he actually is two different people or that they are two different people. Um, so the, you have the fact that he's exiled from the deep and then you have the, the battle at the end of the movie with the RDA. It's both triggered and dependent on this Lucifer archetype attacking first. Like everyone is waiting. They don't know they're waiting for him, but they are waiting. And, and Pat, uh, Pyacon attacking the, the ship is the thing that sets this final battle into motion. So I was like, okay, definitely the, the, the Lucifer archetype. Then we have to go like, uh, you know, who exactly was he fighting against? Christopher, can I add one small little amendment to yours that's really going to beef it up? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Pyakon selects one of Jake's sons. Now, what does that sound like? Two brothers, and one of them was decided to follow a certain side of this uh, eternal spiritual war where one stayed with God. If Pyakon is representative of Lucifer and one of Jake's sons followed him, who do you think that's representative of? Any ideas? Would it be? Sorry, my brain just. It, it almost it's for me. It's almost Cain and Abel, but without the fight between the brothers. It's separating okay, brothers from okay. from different from different paths. Okay, okay. I was thinking like Jacob and Esau. Could be that but, also. Okay, okay. Hey, but here's what's funny about that. So from scripture, Cain felt rejected by God, right? Who would be the father? Mm-hmm. In this one, the son who's picked who who is picked to to by by that uh by the I forget his name. What is it? Pyacon. 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 Yeah, the son that's picked by Pyacon is actually rejected by Jake Sully. Mm-hmm. So it's the rejected son motif. And and yeah. And the other one died. That's crazy. Huh. Okay. Interesting. It's an interesting little tidbit there. It is. So Pyacon is the, the Lucifer archetype. And we know that Lucifer was exiled for, you know, the violence found in his heart due to the abundance of his trade and convinced angels to go with him. In the movie, because it's inverted, it's only a misconception that he's a bad guy. You know, he's really misunderstood. He's really our saving grace. It, it completely turns it upside down. And as we've been saying this, this whole episode is this is one of the issues with motion pictures. So every time we see this type of messaging, it tricks our mind into running the real life neurological simulation. And due to neuroplasticity, every time it does that, it establishes a, a, a more concrete pathway. You know, I think it, it functions a lot like, you know, walking through a field of tall grass. You know, the first time you can barely tell that anybody did it, but the more you walk down this particular path, the more substantial substantial it becomes and um, it ends up being the path of least resistance. Or in the case of neuroplasticity, it becomes a habitual brain response. So the more, the more that the media convinces us or the more that we expose ourselves to running the scenario that Satan is really just misunderstood, the more we internally process and accept the idea, even if it actually goes against what we know. So I I just think that that's, that's, that's why we're, we're doing this. Megan, this is why we're breaking it down. This is why it's important. (laughs) 
Anyway, once I realized who the, the, the Lucifer archetype was, you know, who was, who was he going against? Clearly the, uh, the main antagonist of the movie, Colonel Michael Cortec or Corich. I keep Miles Corich. Miles Corich. Yeah. Yeah. So he had a death and resurrection thing, right? That allowed him to be more powerful in this movie, merging his human nature and training with that of the Navi. So I think he actually is the divine Jesus archetype. And that's why in this inversion, he's the bad guy. And, you know, like we were saying, even the institution that he works for, the RDA, they offer humans eternal life. Because this stuff, the, the stuff that they're selling them, you know, stops human aging. And uh, if Miles is the divine Jesus archetype, his mission is at all costs to thwart the works of the enemy, Jake Solly. So I think this makes Jake Solly the Antichrist archetype. And it's pretty interesting because both Ryan Airy and Eric Voss, so Screen Crush and New Rockstars, they talk about the parallels of the journey between Jake and Miles. So they were both Marines. They both had a, a death and resurrection uh, type ritual. They're both um, hybrids of the indigenous people. They both make a scene when they wake up in their avatar. They're both introduced to the Navi culture through the same phrase, I see you. Uh, they both had to rant, wrestle banshees, you know, uh, as they they came into their role as embracing the Navi. And in this one, they're both fathers. But it's interesting, Mistler talks, or used to talk, about how Antichrist is kind of a, a misnomer, that it, it's really the replacement Christ. But in this inverted telling of the story, the divine Jesus archetype comes after and follows in the footsteps of the Antichrist. So it's completely backwards. Because in the, in the real world, Jesus came and the Antichrist is going to be imitating that. In this movie, the Antichrist was already there and Korchik comes in, mimics everything that the Antichrist did. So even in like the, the time, the timeline, it's, it's reversed a little bit. Well, even think about the way Korich dies in the first film. He's in his power loader, which he's strapped into, and his arms are out and his legs are straight. It's very reminiscent of the crucifix. The way he falls. He's impaled by an arrow, which because the Navi size looks like a spear. And when he yeah. comes back into this world, like a revelation coming back at the end times, he descends from the heavens. So I can see it fitting the the Christ archetype quite well. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Wild. Cool. Yeah. So this this is where I think it gets a little a little thick. So so hang with me for a second. If Jake is the Antichrist archetype, arch, archetype, it gets a little interesting. So we've we've talked before about how the modern iteration of the Satanic Control Matrix is in direct response of the Church persecuting the ideologies of the occult, right? And they had to go into hiding and cover themselves in Christian phraseology. You know, this is Manly P. Hall kind of explains this in, in one of his books. This is almost exactly what happens in the movie. So after the death and resurrection of the divine Jesus archetype, Miles, 
and, and his advancements against the Solly family, it sends Jake and his family further into hiding. And the people he ends up hiding with are the Metkayana people. I think this makes them the church archetype. So not necessarily the, the bride of, of Christ church, like the church functioning the way it's supposed to, but more of this ecumenical church merging the, the church and the pagan elite, pretty much Catholicism. Like they, they, they represent the, the Catholic church as they've accepted the antichrist into their, their culture. Now, in fairness, it does take them a little while to accept Jake Sully and his family. You know, they first call him a demon in the beginning. Um, and they, and they did consider Piacon an outcast, but little by little, they kept giving into these new ideas. And in the end, they're actually led into battle against the divine Christ archetype by the antichrist. And this takes me to what I originally thought was the hallmark of dropping the ball for a, a movie that's so expensive and it took them 13 years to make it. I was actually uh, not enraged, but getting so far into this movie, almost three hours in and you have the climax battle scene and the, uh, the Metkayana tribe vanishes without a trace. I was like, what? It, it kind of reminded me of the, the RC twins from whatever trans transformers movie that was. They're cracking jokes and fighting amongst each other the whole time. And then for no reason and no explanation, they just stop showing up in the movie. And I was like, did they hit a budget issue? Like there was an entire army of people fighting and now they're gone. Were they raptured? That's it. That's it. That's what I thought. And I, I went back. I had to watch the movie again. I was like, I didn't enjoy it. But for the listeners, I got to give them the, sh- the right show. And I went back and watched it just because of my love for our listeners. And <laughs> all, the moment that everyone disappears is the moment that the Antichrist, Jake Sawley, and the divine Jesus archetype meet in the sky, riding their flying steeds and begin fighting one another. At that moment, the church disappears completely out of the battle. Well, that's very interesting because in the storyline of the the whole film franchise, and you look at the the anthology books around it, the Metakayin have a deeper connection to Awa than what the forest people do. Okay. So they, they fit the bill for the church because they have a deeper seated connection to Awa. So their version of God within this film. So if they are the, those saved people, they are raptured. They're gone when the battle takes place. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's so weird. And this is one of the things to tie back to something you said earlier, Jason. It doesn't necessarily mean that James Cameron planned this. But it's really weird. It's a really bizarre oversight. And even if they are raptured, it's weird that nobody caught it. Like there was no explanation to them vanishing. Like they literally are just gone and you don't see them until the very end of the movie. And one of the whole reasons they went to war is because their children were were kidnapped. Their children are still kidnapped 
when their parents disappear, when the the entire people group just vanishes. So I, I really think that there's there's something significant there. And I'm not convinced that James Cameron is even aware of what the 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 spiritual messaging that he's he's put in this. So you did say, or I think maybe it was Drew who said that he got originally this idea from a dream. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it is quite possible that this type of embedded information was just transmitted to him. It was just communicated. Right. And he's just the vessel. Okay. Very possible. Which then, then means it, you got to wonder what do you what are you tapped into? Right. And this is what concerns me about one of these big characters that they're building up for this franchise. I think he essentially wants six films in total. With this film, he actually filmed Avatar 3 at the same time, so he's getting ready to roll that out next year. But when we look at the character, where are we? It goes... So when James Cameron is explaining Kiri, which is the... Initially, I thought was the Antichrist because it's a or the, some kind of a variation of Jesus, an inversion of that, because she was born out of immaculate conception through the avatar of the previous um, character in the film. The okay. problem with this character is the way in which he describes it. And this is what concerns me, Jason, as to why it could be a direct dra- download or information given to him. So this is James Cameron's interview he had. James Cameron explains why there's so many mysteries with Kiri revealing that it's an important part of a larger story connecting all the Avatar sequels. He's quoted as saying, We ask a lot of questions with Kiri that we don't answer, even over the course of the entire film. It's a greater story arc. It's a big journey for the audience with her. But it's okay because you care about her because she has a luminous quality. Oh, she's got a light about her, does she? She does. She has a light about her. And we see that within the film and where she has a connection with Awa, air quotes. She's underwater and all the luminescent little fish swarm her and surround her in light. And she saves her adopted mother and her stepsister through the use of luminescence. She is the illuminated one in this film. Interesting. Okay. Okay. That's wild. And she's also the one that's that communes with the Ewas, which is the spirit tree on on Pandora. Right. Hmm. She's the one that apparently goes into has such a deep connection with it that she goes into um what what do they call that? Uh like a trance like state. Seizure, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think in, in ancient times that response was said to be an indication of a direct communication with the God. You know, the gods were so overpowering. It would cause you to have a seizure. The Catholic church so, thought it was demonic possession. Yeah. But that would almost make her an Oracle then mm-hmm. the illuminated one. Interesting. Yeah. I'm sure it's accidental. <laughs> Not to go back too far, but this was part of the reason that the movie frustrated me so much is because you get no information. Like you just get these these tidbits and these questions, and it's three hours long. Like there should have been more to with without more information. It's hard to be invested in it. You know what I mean? You're just not sure even really what you're seeing. You know that's not where I get upset, Christopher. I I, I get really heated at the fact that James Cameron's film that is over three hours long made 
a few billion dollars. Right? Okay. And it was fairly empty. We do episodes of around three hours, and they are <laughs> chock full of information. Nobody complained to Mr. Cameron about his three hours of emptiness. Every <laughs> once in a while, somebody likes to chuck a stone over it. I was like, why, why are your episodes like three hours long? I'm like, I'll tell you what. If this is too much for you, watch Avatar a couple times. You know, build up your tolerance. <laughs> Get okay with just sitting there for three hours with mindless content. And then once you get conditioned to that, come on over here. We'll fill you up for a good three hours. You won't even have to be sitting there mindless. But aren't you so I glad was that was 45 minutes of learning how to swim? That's quality I cinema right out. there. I think I tuned out. Jason needed point. it. No, no, no. I, I really tuned out. <laughs> I think at one point I fast forwarded through the film. I'm like, keep going. <laughs> yeah. Water, water, water. Oh, a fight scene. Play. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Pause. Let's. All right. Let's get back into it. This is going to be good. Me and, and my I, wife. I would hit play. <laughs> me and my wife were watching it at night and we're like, do we want to finish it? So we paused it to see how far we were. We were only halfway through the movie. We were like, <laughs> nah, well, we'll pick it up. Another time. It really needed funny. an intermission, didn't it? Like the old school cinema. Yes. Yes, it did. But it's funny that you mentioned the, the length of our episodes because I was talking to a buddy at work and I was complaining, right? I was like, and it's so long. And he was like, well, you better not make your episode longer than the movie. And I was like, huh? You've you didn't done see that, that one coming? I didn't see it. I was like, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's hurtful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I started to stay away from that that little statement. Oh, man. I found other issues with the movie. Nothing to do with the length of the film. <laughs> well, you know, you know, stones and glass houses and whatnot. <laughs> right, right. But it, it's the, it was more the issue that it was just empty. I, I don't have an issue with long movies. I think the Lord of the Rings franchise is fantastic. I just don't think we were given anything for the time that we invested. No, I, I would agree. And it's kind of funny. James Cameron basically said, if there's going to be a, a third film or a fourth or a fifth, really, it comes down to do people even care anymore? No, that's the problem. Because <laughs> he said, like, you know, they're, they're, this thing had to make so much money just to break even. And it was basically it had to beat. I, I believe it had to beat Avatar's record just to break even. Yeah, so the but studio would consider. And I'm like, that's a hard one to to do because avatar originally was new it was mm -hmm. groundbreaking people were going to see that and it created a movement this the second film doesn't have that energy it doesn't have the momentum it doesn't really have the depth and i don't know i, I don't see people caring enough i i think that was a marketing ploy personally why is that well, because th there was so much hype about it. And if he's really concerned that nobody cares, then why would you spend that much money? And the other issue, like Drew was saying earlier, he filmed the third movie. So where, where do you split the budget? Because so many times, in order for this to make any money at all, it's got to be like third or second on the list to even, you know, make any profit. But a lot of that money that they spent was filming an entire other movie. So I don't know. It just seemed like a 
please, somebody care, please go see this movie. If not, you won't get any more. I don't know. It it seemed like a little bit of a- Michael Bay did the same thing though with Transformers and they won't stop making those. They get progressively worse each time and they just keep pumping them out (laughs) because it's a sequel. What did did he say about Transformers? That it it was after Sheila LaBeouf had left the, the franchise that- he was concerned about it not making the money to justify making any more. But then we've got like another three or four since then. And he's even gone down the route of it's a prequel or it's a reimagining. It's, okay. I think as long yeah. as there's a, I think Disney's kind of proven they're prepared to take things at a loss just for the sake of putting the product out there because they're so afraid of other people getting intellectual property. They'd much rather have it bomb on their own rights than someone else make the slightest bit of success of it. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. What What were you going to say, Jason? Well, I, I was going to say sometimes studios will hold on to a film even though it's already you know been been made if they don't want to release it. So you might be right. It might have been a ploy to generate more interest um, or it really could be a, a fair statement that now we're not going to really release this or more so we're not going to sink any money into a fourth sequel. Like he's already shot the third one. Mm-hmm. But if you if you want four five and six. No, the only thing that's interest me is that he said, don't know if this is true. But he said he's already shown, I guess, the plans for four and five. And the only thing he's gotten back from the studio is, are you effing nuts? Okay. Now, that one's got me a little interested. Like, <laughs> I'll bite. See, I'll I've, see what crazy's like. I've got some speculation around that. And if it's anything like my wild imagination, it's going to get freaky. Which is part of me wants to see it. What, what do you think is going to happen? I think it's going to lead to that Awa is an artificial intelligence living and residing within the planet, and it created the Na'vi just as the humans created the avatars. And it's created like a bio-organic planet for itself to live on. That's why when they mine the unobtainium, they're actually taking out the processes of the AI itself. That's why it's defending itself. Huh. Yeah, because it's, they do talk about it, that it's like activating an immune response. or, or That's interesting. Okay. And it's, it's alluded to that uh, the, the Avatar aren't actually indigenous to the planet. That they're a okay. recompetent of what the apes on that planet used to be. And they've been changed and altered themselves. So, it's oh. almost like his retelling of it's like his kind of sick fantasy about what it'd be like to be a god. And if god was an AI intelligence with a... At universal intelligence and linked subconscious to everything. Okay. He's going to deviate away a lot from the action and go into some really esoteric stuff that I think isn't going to be surface uh, buried away. It's going to be on the surface. Okay. That actually sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Way better than learning how to swim for 45 minutes. <laughs> So that's about all I had for the the background messaging. Did you have anything else, Drew? Um, I've just got a quick little throwaway to the whale symbolism. Notably, a lot of people would go straight to Jonah and the whale, the relationship this boy has with the whale. He gets swallowed by it in order to download its memories to see what happened to it, right? Um, Okay. It has the- a variation of Paikea, which is the whale that brought the first man to New Zealand from Hawaii. So within their folklore, a boy was outcast from his fishing village and he boarded a whale and it took him to New Zealand. So it's tapping into those Polynesian tales. 
Okay. But the biggest part about these whales is what Jason alluded to earlier with the, the amrita, the liquid being almost like an adrenochrome. But it's two-tiered in the way it's presented in this film. It ties into some real-world examples of what whaling was within the, the 18th and 17th centuries. So, amorite is a reference to sperm oil, and don't laugh at this, as in the sperm whale. Sperm oil was a clear yellowish-coloured liquid um, of wax that was produced from a cranial melon in sperm whales, so very similar to what these tolkoon have. Um, it's a natural antioxidant and heat transfer agent prized for its illumination qualities in the 18th and early 19th centuries for its bright, odourless flame and was popular lubricant for its low viscosity and thermal stability. It was also used as a rust inhibitor to protect metals and saw right its widespread use in the aerospace industry, but was cut short in 1987 when international bans on whaling occurred. So we've got this illuminescent byproduct of whales that's used to create light, heat protection, and actually limits the amount of inflammation in the human body. So we've got a real okay. world example of this in our history. But if we jump into the more esoteric side of things, if that wasn't enough, the Tolkien species have this liquid in them that's amorite, which humans are using as a de-aging agent. It stops aging completely. So that's why it's so expensive in this. People just don't want to age anymore. Essentially, it creates people as a, a god status. It links back to what the Greek gods called ambrosia, nectar of the gods. So when humans ate or drank from this um, this thing, they became gods themselves. This is where we see the immortality come into it. Now, in Hindu mythology, Amrita, pronounced slightly different, spelt the same way, means the drink of the gods that bestows immortality. So they're telling us that this nectar is linked back to Hindu and Greek stories of a liquid that's used to create a godlike status to uplift humanity from being a a single source of single life uh, lived person to becoming a god it's that idea of um luciferianism as being greater than god humanity being better than the creator the issue with this also is that this nectar comes from kundalini now kundalini is an indian practice of sexual magic so within this practice the nectar is produced in the body when the flow of kundalini, so this energy, goes from the centre of the human body, it becomes strong and then is released through sexual fluids when drawn upon from the bladder. So, essentially, it means you don't climax, and when you don't climax, it releases this into your body. So, And it's supposedly better for you, but that's the practice of this esoteric belief. They've got this idea of an adrenochrome, an ambrosia, and a sexual magic all in one. Jeez. That's wild. I, it reminds wow. me, I was um, I was listening to to Eric Voss do a breakdown of the movie, and he mentioned um, the the Kundalini, and that he didn't explain it, so I I didn't realize that there was a sexual component to it. But then he made the statement after that, which is really alarming, especially if there's spirits behind this. He said that yeah, James Cameron has us all. Uh, um, watching his movie like f from another dimension in child's pose. And it was right after he was talking about adrenochrome and Kundalini. And I was like, that wasn't an accident. 
What's child pose? Child's pose is, I mean, in, um, cause Kundalini is linked to yoga. Uh, like the, the ideas cross a lot. So you get, you know, I don't know, downward facing dog. I'm sure that'd be the one you remember. <laughs> Crashing target, <laughs> hidden dragon. <laughs> well, I, I think even in the, um, like we do the little bit mojis for a lot of our mm-hmm. slides. There's the, the one where there's a tree. There's one where it's a snake. Because these these are the yoga poses and child's pose. I don't know what it is, but it's the name of a particular pose in okay. Kundalini yoga. Didn't not realizing that this actual, um, uh, what was it? What, what did you say it was called, Drew? The uh, the whatever that's released inside of you when you don't climax. Yeah. yeah so the nectar. So the, of the Kundalini. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Yeah. The nectar. It's actually no called, it was it's, its name is called Natural Vajroli. Okay. I would stick with nectar. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a lot easier. Yeah. Interesting. But That's it really crazy. surprised me. Not only is the idea that they're, they're, the messaging behind this liquid stops aging, very adrenochrome-ish, very conspiratorial, but even the links back to whaling and, and the uses from the sperm whale oil in itself seems very luciferian now with the way we look back on things it's an illuminating liquid that had the ability right. to be a heat protectant it lubricated things for extreme heat now that seems like something that you would associate with a light bringer someone who can tolerate extreme heats and extreme energy and it's this one liquid that was found in wales of all in the same type of place an adrenal gland yeah that's that's crazy i'm still messed up with the kundalini <laughs> yeah it's got, yeah it's got that, so many interesting crossovers yeah that that that's some great insight yeah thank you drew but in the end it's i mean it's just once again sympathy for the devil right oversimplification sympathy for the devil and a ton of conditioning to help us or convince us to accept the ideals of the the, the coming new world order and Jason, I'm going to need you to help us out a little bit because we've laid out some pretty interesting ideas thus far, right? Kundalini, Mm -hmm. adrenochrome, distorted family models, like all kinds of stuff. Right. But when it comes to Avatar, the way of the water, how exactly do you see this tying in to the satanic control matrix? Because, I mean, I would hate to to waste all of the hours flooding my mind with disappointment <laughs> and bringing our listeners this deep into an episode. And the only thing they were able to take away from it is this. So where do we place James Cameron, Jake Solly, the visual effects, the elongated amount of time it took to, to tell this story and all the other stuff. I need you to break down the satanic control matrix for us. Beginning, middle, end. Facts, details, condense, plot, tell it. <laughs> that clip never gets old. I it doesn't. It. I love it. <laughs> but dude, you give me such like a tall order. I don't I don't know how to take all of that together and come up with something with the satanic control matrix. I got nothing, man. Nothing. Yeah, you say that a lot. <laughs> I'll take a stab at it. All uh, right. I think... Uh, couple things that that i would i would touch on first i mean of course people who have listened to us for any amount of time have heard us talk about the satanic control matrix people new to the game here um 
the 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 satanic control matrix is a mechanism that's used to not only bring absolute control over humanity onto the planet but also be it, it's a mechanism that's used to help steer humanity towards the final solution satan's final solution and it's broken apart into three sections you know you're looking at control over the individual control over society and then control from a global perspective and with the individual typically we're looking at utilizing a compromised educational system that introduces people to subtle demonic ideas and gets them comfortable with with luciferian thinking and then those individuals are obviously funneled into social control groups and those groups are in many respects put under mind control um, protocols that are coming through the news are coming through entertainment they're coming through social media they're coming through other technologies but it's designed to steer the social conscious and re-engineer society so that the individual society at large can be plugged into a global control apparatus known as the new world order and i, I say a different way of kind of envisioning this imagine if you walk into a room and there's a mirror in front of you uh, it, the glass in front of that mirror would be the worldview, how you see everything. But then there's this interfacing layer on the backside of it would be what we would call a false reality overlay. And it's what, what looks like a regular mirror, but stops you from seeing that this is actually a two-way mirror. And on the other side of that, that mirror would be the satanic control matrix. All the craziness that's happening in that other room is you're being evaluated, viewed as new as new control mechanisms are being created for you. All of this stuff plays together. And particularly in the, the second tier of control that deals with mind control, we see these types of products being created and they're not done accidental. They actually serve some really interesting purposes. Now, we've been talking all this time about Avatar, and I find it interesting that that neither of us, I don't know if it'd be neither of us, but none of us, since there's, there's more than two. <laughs> English is tricky. Um, none of us actually seem to include in our calculus the title of the film, which is Avatar and the significance of what an avatar is. Like an avatar has its roots back in Hinduism. It's an it's it's a entity that allows for a god to be expressed in this dimension. So it's immediately tied to the spiritual world. And I find that so interesting, especially when this is the second film in this series. Like it's got me wondering first, what gods are we talking about? Who's being controlled? And why in particular is this called the way of water? And I started doing some additional research, not just for the film over your eyes, but when I first came up, started looking at the at Avatar, the way of water, I was intrigued with this idea because I was also studying something that we talked about in a prior episode. Um, and this was this idea of elemental spirits. I think we talked about this a couple episodes ago. Okay. And this elemental spirit idea, man, it, it was kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around. I know people will hear us talking and many times we'll present information and they're like, well, these guys know all this. And it's, it's funny. Some of the stuff we present, like me personally, I still have to wrestle with it. 
Like okay. I might accept like, okay, this is true and this is how it is, but then there's another part of me who's like, ah, it still hurts. It's still hard to like completely change my worldview. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the, the elemental spirit thing was was kind of like that because speaking of that false reality overlay that so many of us have been uh, exposed to, thinking how, where you start on a subject is so important. And when you're talking about all of this stuff, you know, satanic control matrix, reality, all of that, if you start looking at reality as though it's nature first, we're looking at it like a Newtonian physics perspective, it changes our, our our view on how we understand the inner workings of let's say the spiritual realm. But if we look at reality as though it is supernatural first and the natural realm is a subset of a much more powerful, much more expansive, much more elaborate realm, the, the unseen realm, it gives us some some latitude to begin to see things differently and accept some realities that we probably wouldn't be comfortable with if we were just starting from a natural only perspective you follow what i'm saying mm -hmm. to that end we seem to be especially as christians victims of this reductionist view of reality it's almost like you like we said before when you're looking at the spiritual realm it's just God, Satan, some angels, some demons. That's it. Right. God's in heaven. Satan and the demons are in hell. That's it. So there's only two places. Earth, I guess, is in, in the middle. So now there's three places. But that's it. We've only got three. Right. And it, it's very, very reduced. And the more you get into scripture, and if you treat scripture as a supernatural book first, the more you're able to see how the spiritual realm probably functions very different from what conventional wisdom would suggest. And this idea of spiritual entities not being restricted solely to just heaven or hell, but actually being tied to other, um, how, how would we say it? Other jurisdictional territories, even within the, the terrestrial realm, becomes something that's far more interesting especially if you're dealing with this idea of elementals elementals being spirits that have jurisdiction over four key areas we're, we're talking air water earth and fire sounds a lot like captain america right yeah that's a planet or the last airbender it <laughs> is they say you're getting ahead of me get out oh, my notes like Drew my said. bad my bad <laughs> my goodness Right, but we see these elements repeated. And you're right. Last Airbender is is one. We saw we saw those same elements in the fifth element, right? Mm -hmm. I was reading the other day in Revelation 16, and I was blown away to find that these elemental spirits and kingdoms show back up. Right in Revelation, you know, it's interesting. You're dealing with the seven bowls of God's wrath, and you have these angels. Four angels are pouring out bowls. And if you read it closely, like the, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water. Then there was the the fifth angel. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the, hold on a second. The third angel poured it out on the rivers. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. Those four right there are air, water, land, and fire. Then you get the uh, the fifth angel who pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. If you remember back with 
the fifth element, there was a spiritual element that was necessary when all four were there. Okay. Right. And you see these same four elements present here. So the idea of the elemental kingdom, I think is a really biblical, a biblically founded and seated idea, but it's still hard for people to kind of wrap their minds around. I was blown away to see that avatar is actually a, a telling of this elemental kingdom motif because you start in the first one dealing with land-based entities and you move to the second one dealing with water-based entities james cameron like drew said he's already filmed the third one the mm -hmm. third one is going to deal with fire entities can i blow your mind with this because you're just what's up you're reading my mind here brother when you're talking about elemental spirits the water component of it is very big within Southeast Asian culture. So many people within that culture do not learn to swim because they are fearful of the evil spirits that dwell within waterways in the ocean. And we see that within this film, the spirits and entities live within the water. You absolutely bang on with the title for the next film. The coin term for it is going to be the fire tribe or the way of fire, some kind of rudimentary version of this. But the plot around it is that this new group of Navi, like we've had our forest Navi, the grounded ones, we've had the water ones. These new fire ones are evil and they're a tribe that all the other Navi fear. And this harkens back to what we see within fire, within scripture, what entities dwell and live within fire that are spirits, the jinn. And we see that within Islamic scriptures of the Quran also. Right. Huh. Now, now here, here's what's crazy. It, it's not just South uh, East Asia that actually has this whole idea with, with the, the water spirits. It's very big in Africa. It was, it's big with um, the, the, native, the Native Americans here. It's big in the Polynesian area. Aboriginals, Bunyips. Right. Almost every major culture recognizes the existence of water spirits or marine spirits, as they're also known. And there tend to be doing some research, was listening to a number of different people. Um, one of them, for anybody who's interested in this, Sheila Zelensky, you can go on YouTube, take take a listen. Uh, we'll also try to link it in our Patreon show notes. But she did a, a series with or not a series. She did a show with. Um, I believe the lady's name was Sharon Malky and they actually talk about marine spirits and they identify the fact that there are apparently two principalities that are over this marine kingdom one being what's called the uh, queen of the coast and the other one being called the queen of the sea and the queen of the coast I believe is in charge of the Atlantic Ocean and the queen of the sea is in charge of the Indian Ocean obviously for me I'm like well what's up with the Pacific does, does that get anything <laughs> still doing some research haven't found out much about the pacific ocean but i would not be surprised if that too has an entity over it but I, i'm getting a little ahead of myself people who aren't familiar with this stuff they're like what are you talking about water spirits angels in in water or over water this seems ridiculous i was one of those people as i was listening to this right i'm like there's i won't say there's no way this is true but you're gonna have to sell me on it. They jumped to Revelation and they talked about how there is an angel right there in Revelation that says yeah, it was the angel out of the sea that actually says to God, you know, you've been, you've judged righteously. I said, well, dag on it. it. That's right there. And if we're dealing with kingdoms, if we're dealing with um, 
principalities. Satan's kingdom. What's the word I'm looking for? It, it counterfeits everything that God's kingdom does, right? So if there are an elemental kingdom and angels responsible for being in that, then there's going to be good angels. There's also going to be bad angels, if you will, because there's going to be a counterfeit. So then it would make sense that right there in scripture, you do have a reference to an angel that is still loyal to Yahweh that's actually being tasked with doing something. And then you would have as a satanic counterfeit, you would have principalities that are loyal to Satan that are also charged with doing specific things, right? There are reports, I was listening to, to Dan Duvall and he was referencing a couple of these independent reports of people who come out of South Africa and have actually, um, not South Africa, but come out of the African continent and have actually gone on record talking about their experiences with marine spirits and how even in voodoo, this is a very big thing. In fact, the spirits that come out of the water and, and, and entice people in voodoo, they are called Iwas. Really? And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Huh. I'm sorry, not there's not an S on there. They're called Iwa. Okay. Which then is too close for comfort for me for what's happening with, with Avatar, right? Right, right. Uh-huh. And they apparently, they seduce people. They will promise them riches. They will offer them whatever they want. But then there's an exchange. There's a trade, which again, seems very reminiscent of Luciferian uh, protocols and methodologies. Mm -hmm. With that, you do get access to certain things, but then your not only is your soul traded in, in the bargain, but there are also things you have to do. And once all that is said and done, things get a little weird. Now, scripture talks about how dead, the dead are actually in hell, right? Or, or, or in Hades, if you will. But also, the, there are dead in the sea. The scripture talks about the sea giving up its dead and death giving up its dead. Okay. Not. That's interesting. Right. Yeah. I saw the look on your face. You were like, wait a minute. You had to do some recalculating and recalibrating <laughs> because the standard narrative would be all souls that are deceased are in death or in Hades or in hell or in the grave. That's she pretty much that. or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Not in the sea. What's the depths of hell, the depths of the ocean, the seven layers of hell, the seven seas. It's very comparable, right? You get an overlap. Okay. You, 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 and you get an overlap even with, um, part of the problem is that we get influenced with Greco Roman ideas and they stand, they, they tend to stick deeper than biblical ideas. So then we get this battle back and forth, like, you know, which one is which, but the idea that this sea contains the dead blew my mind. And I'm like, well, well, what's happening there? Well, go back to some of these accounts. Um, I don't have the title of the, of the books right in front of me. I think one is Snatched from Satan's Claws. Uh, and I forget the other one. But these gentlemen actually talked about their experiences under the sea and the fact that there is an actual city under the sea that they were ushered to. In an out-of-body experience, meaning that their souls left their body, and not just like in a weird, your soul left your body. They literally went through an occult ritual to usher in demons to walk into their body, to keep their body alive while their soul was astral projected through and across the waterways down underneath 
the, uh, the, the, the ocean into an underwater city. And the things they said they saw in the city, I'm not even gonna get into because that was wild. But now I'm struggling with this idea of an underwater city. And I'm like, this sounds preposterous. Except for the fact that Mr. James Cameron himself built a whole film off of this idea known as The Abyss. And it's not the only movie that purports an underwater city. Think about Little Mermaid, the opening, especially on the animated classic. As soon as that little fish gets off the net and swims down and then takes his breath and then he starts swimming again, what happens? You go with the little seaweed and kelp. I've only seen this a few times. You go over, <laughs> over dip down and then poof, an underwater city, right? You see the same thing in Star Wars. There's a whole planet mm -hmm. that's got this whole underwater motif going on. You see it in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. You know, you got, you got, was it Cuckoo Khan? They called him Cuckoo Khan, the Feather Serpent God. His whole city thing is underwater. Mm -hmm. It's, it's getting repeated over and over and over and over. And this idea that there are, there are entities, almost godlike entities that are associated with this. Oh, I forgot Aquaman. Soon as they went under the water, big old huge city under the sea. And what are they? Aquaman represents a Nephilim, right? They, He's uh, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, and he was also uh, found shelter in a whale because we had talked. Drew was talking about that showing up in multiple stories, but he had to escape and hid in inside of a whale as well. I think the interesting thing yet that I'm grasping from this whole idea of water and something being either held within it or hiding within it is that God created the flood so that he could rid the world of the corrupted DNA of the mixed angels and humans. He was angry at the angels, not because they disobeyed him, but because they were given the ability to be everlasting. They didn't need to procreate. They didn't need to have children because they themselves are everlasting. Now, if the world's flooded, and your children are gone, but you're still within the earth. You're either within the earth or you're within the ocean because you are everlasting. The flood will not kill you. You are still here. Are they And there's the spirits like you're alluding to with angels of the, the bad variety that dwell within, within these oceans. Is that what the cities that they are living or constructing that are represented in these films? That's what my mind goes to. I, I think they're, they are, but I think it's also more expansive. I, I don't think it's just for those angels. I mean, again, according to some of these accounts that, that I had to research and go through, human beings are also down there as well. I mean, there, there are multiple entities, not just fallen angels. There's also demoniac. There's also uh, people. And there's, uh, according again to their testimony, there's merfolk. There are just different classifications of life forms that actually exist things that would probably blow people's minds now one of the things that i thought was crazy was the idea that and, and this was again from these people's testimony the idea that commerce almost everything that affects us on land is coming from the sea that products technologies that that um films that music the stuff that we have on land is being influenced by these these cities under the sea and these various waterway points of travel and, and convergence. I was like, ah, I don't know. 
the again getting back to the Sheila Zelensky show, she was the lady was on there was talking about even how fashion is influenced by these spiritual entities in that city. And I went to look up Versace, and I was shocked to find out the Versace's logo is a is Medusa. And that he intentionally decided to have that logo because Medusa was captivating to men. Then if you look into the lore of Medusa, apparently she slept with Poseidon and was judged. Poseidon being the king of the ocean. Coincidentally, after looking at Little Mermaid, especially the live action film, I was shocked to find out that King Triton is really Poseidon. Mm -hmm. Which is, you don't pick this up in, in the animated classic. But they are way more on the nose. So now, again, we've got you asking me how this all plays into the satanic control matrix. We've got films. We've got content that is all being designed to cultivate our way of thinking. And it's showing us spiritual realities that we are learning to accept. And why? Like, how does that play into a larger objective? Well, Jesus said that his return is going to be like it was in the days of Noah. What was happening in the days of Noah? You had hybridization that had run amok. You had humanity being mixed with any and everything based off of fallen angel technology. And right now, humanity is being reconditioned to accept that. Before us, three, four hour films are being made to show us, wouldn't it be cool to utilize technology to create yourself an avatar so that you can interface with these different elemental kingdoms? Sure, that doesn't sound so bad. I get, you know, enhanced capabilities, i.e. transhumanism. I'll be able to, to almost have my conscious projected into another body and I'll be able to interface in this whole new world. Don't think Disney, Christopher. I, I know you, you almost <laughs> jumped to that. Don't resist the urge. Within all of that, we're being set up so that we will fight the, the final fight against God from every place possible. From land, from water, from the air, even from down below. And all of this is being fed into our minds so that we're less resistant to when that finally comes as an offer. I'm not sure if the whole Mark of the Beast part is not about signing up to have yourself completely changed genetically. I think it probably is. And it's, mm -hmm. it's not surprising that we're seeing so much indoctrination on it. first off rejecting your humanity as we were saying earlier a lot of the themes in this in this film was about humanity being bad humanity being discouraged humanity being the problem not sin just humanity and so if your humanity is the problem get rid of it and if you can get rid of it get rid of it with an upgrade upgrade to an avatar and life will be way better you you can figure out which one of these clans you want to be a part of and you can have the best life possible I think that's the satanic ploy that was even offered to Eve. Reject what God has created. Join me. You'll have you'll have the best that there is. And I think we're seeing that now. Here's the problem, though. If people don't realize, if they don't wake up, if they don't look at what they're putting into their mind, if they're not actually aware of the fact that what they are ingesting is actually affecting them, then they run the risk of thinking that they are like somewhere chilled out feet up in the theater we're cool we're in the back hills of topeka kansas when the reality is you are not in kansas anymore you are on pandora ladies and gentlemen respect that fact 
every second of every day. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You've got to obey the rules. Knowing that Miles fulfills the the divine Jesus archetype has me love that quote so much more now. <laughs> that makes it that much better. That's but hilarious. Yeah, we you got to obey the rules. Rule number one is educate yourself. We got to know what the Bible says. So I have a, a couple scriptures here. One is that um, staying free from deception. Scripture tells us isn't easy. So, so Matthew 24, 23, you know, this is the, the part of the scripture says, you know, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, you know, there he is. Don't believe it for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible, even the elect. So we hear this a lot, but I really think we need to, to grasp the idea that that deception is going to be the easy way. A lot of times we hold this idea that that what we hold to be true, that we won't be deceived. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. truth isn't truth isn't something that you just require once and then hold for the rest of your life. It's something that needs constant replenishing. And if if the only replenishing we do is with movies like this, then we're doomed to be deceived. Right. I think scripture also warns us that Satan is a murderer and he comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. So John 8, 4, 4, he was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in truth. And John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. So despite how convincing the movies portray the idea, this fan of man, as devil's advocate puts it, is not on our side. He has nothing to offer us but death and destruction. And we we have to, I, I mean, it's weird, but we have to keep reminding ourselves of that because we keep getting fed the other message on a consistent basis. Right. And then the last thing is that scripture anticipates that the world will be united in an active war against God. So Revelation 16, 14 says, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to all the kings of the earth and to the whole world and gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. So, I mean, we we saw this very specifically represented in the first Avatar movie where he, uh, what was it, Taruk Makto, when he rides that giant dragon, he literally goes all over the place to all the different tribes and gathers them together for this war. This is what the enemy is setting out to do. Sidebar, really weird. Did you know that the 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 ponytail thing that they have, that they connect up and, you know, take over an animal? Mm-hmm. You know that's also the means by which they reproduce? Is it? Bundalini. Yeah. yeah, which makes that thing kind of a little bestiality type. Times of Noah. That's weird. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a little nasty. It is. Wow. But again, uh, that's probably accidental, man. Cameron <laughs> it really really makes it weird what he did to that whale, then, doesn't it? Yeah. That seems weirdly sensual, anyway, right? What? 
when he goes inside of the the whale and then like he opens up this little feathery oh, thing. Arm yeah, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. That was weird. Yeah, it was it was real weird. But it also shocked me that they know they don't seem to have any sort of uh, hesitation with this plug and play idea. Just you know, hey. So they're, they're they're all super promiscuous. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. Everybody seems to have the right. What is it? Plug and jack. <laughs> that, they don't have the American <laughs> and European adapters like we say yeah, in the electrical equipment. <laughs> Everything's USB S. <laughs> right. It's, it's 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 wild. That's crazy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> gotta shake that one off. Rule number two. Do not cede any ground to your enemy. What do you have for that, Jason? I don't know. I'm, I'm stuck at seed, but thankfully it's a different seed than what we, we were talking about. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I, I think rule number two is so important because there are so many different ways to actually give up ground. You know, you can't sit through a three-hour movie and not think that you haven't seeded some ground unless you are intentional extremely intentional about protecting your mind gate about actually evaluating what content is going into your mind. And for most people, again, where you start is so important. If you start from the perspective that the natural world is all there is, then you won't even have a framework for a supernatural being that is the embodiment of pure evil and has an atavistic hatred for you that you, you won't even be able to say that they exist, let alone what the game plan is for you. And that's a problem because somebody once said that the greatest thing that the devil ever did was to convince people that he doesn't even exist. How do you fight an enemy that you can't see that you don't think is real and that is smarter than you and has the ability to outthink you? The only way you can do that is through biblical discernment that helps you literally see who your enemy is. scripture to be as serious as God intended and you use scripture to expose the enemy's position oppose his efforts and literally tear down his works but in order to do that you have to follow the third rule which you need to pray like it's all up to God but you work like it's all up to you Christopher what are some things that people could be praying about well one thing that we can pray for is uh that God helps us see the types of messages that are being weaponized against us. 
Because if they're like put it. if they're put in there, if James Cameron is being influenced spiritually, then we should also be influenced spiritually in how to decode and recognize these things. Um, I think that we should pray for uh, mental and spiritual protection as we set out to learn these things, because it it is a battleground, and there, there's not a demilitarized zone. So just walking about, you know, without protection, all willy nilly, I think is a, is a bad move. Right. But then also generally because the enemy sets out to deceive us and not just from the TV, but pray that, that, that God reveals the places that we've been deceived, shows us the ideas that we have that are wrong. You know, the scripture tells us that the Holy spirit says that he will teach us all things. So with that, I think we have a responsibility to ask for that and not just be comfortable in what we think is true today. Do you have anything? Either one of you? No. <laughs> no, I think you covered it. I think it comes back to that old adage, all that's needed for evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing. And if you just rest on your laurels and expect someone else to do it for you, evil's going to happen. And and for us, that means praying on things and hoping that we get guided through the, the to the right knowledge in the right direction. Yeah. And that takes us right to the to the work section. One of the things that I really think that we have to do, and Jason, you're going to hate me for this, I think we have to change our relationship with technology. Christopher, are you there? Hello? <laughs> oh, did I cut out again? Wow. Well, that, you know what? The that technology that you got over there. <laughs> yeah. Harry a pigeon <laughs> podcasting, I don't think is going to take off, though. <laughs> no, yeah, probably exactly. not. <laughs> now, but this is always a hard one, man. It because, is. Because, you know, the, the thing with technology is... I think people envision that they have a, a, a one directional relationship with it. And truly the way technology works is that as you build a relationship with your technology, your technology builds a relationship with you. Right. And so changing that relationship can, it can be just as challenging as changing your relationship with another person. Yeah. But it's important. It is. It is. And an, a part of that, but slightly different, is ch- changing how we interact with 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 messages in general, because it's not just from the TV. You know, we have movies, news, anything like that. And I remember you and I used to, um, we had a daily practice of taking a news article and trying to figure out what logical fallacy was actually being applied in in either the article or the headline or whatever. And that was fun. That one, that one was a, uh, it was a fun game. It was challenging, but I was say we're a bit weird. We are, we are, yeah. but, but I think it, it, it's good because you're training your mind to, to pick up on these things. You know, sure. is it, is it the, the old, uh, Martin Bailey switcheroo? You know, is it the straw man or the red herring? But I don't know. I thought it was fun, but yeah, we are, we are strange, but doing that, um, and, and changing the way you interact with those things, I really think is, is beneficial because it, it's, it, it puts a block to, to the programming and the conditioning. Now, dude, I, I think you're so right. And it's funny. Um, I'm constantly reminded that we have such a truncated view of reality. Like there's so much stuff that's going on around us that we just aren't aware of. Some of the stuff that we know we don't know and then other stuff that we don't even know we don't know. And it, mm-hmm. it always cracks me up where I get reminded about that. I was recently watching a stupid YouTube video, not about DuckTales, and it's <laughs> on Tom Cruise. 
in his portrayal of Les Grossman uh, in, in the movie Tropic Thunder. Okay. And they were talking about how that character got created. And it was actually Tom Cruise who came up with the, the character of this you know obnoxious studio head. But it happened after he read the script. And according to Cruz, he was like, I read the script. The script was lacking downward pressure. There was nothing on these characters to push them forward through the storyline. And I'm like, pause. Who reads a script with that in mind? Like (laughs) downward pressure to push the story along? You just keep the film going. Now, after reading Avatar, I understand that, no, you can have a story that doesn't move forward. Right. But I was blown away. Like I really took my hat off to Cruz because I'm like, you're not just an actor. Right. You have a much wider appreciation for for filmmaking, which does involve acting and involves script writing. It, it involves directing. It involves uh, story development. There's so many different aspects to the art and discipline. And he wanted to be the person that understands all of that. I think we have to get to that point as well, where we're understanding more and more how our minds are being cultivated. Right. Mm -hmm. You're you're absolutely right. It's not just movies. It's not just the news. It's not just entertainment. There are so many different things that are strategically designed, not not accidental, not these one offs. They are intentionally designed to change the way we think. Because the people who design them and the entities behind those people understand the mechanisms of human thought. Why don't we? I remember, dude, you said one time that there, I forget this, the, the statistic on how much money the advertising agency spends or industry spends per year. I don't know if it was like 300 and some billion. It was an astronomical amount. Mm-hmm. But somehow it, it, we figured it down statistically based on just how many people are in the United States that that it equated to an average of about fifteen hundred dollars per person per year. Right. That is spent on cultivating your mind. Ask yourself, how much money did you intentionally spend on changing your mind last year? I think a good amount of people might be like fifteen dollars. <laughs> right. Not fifteen hundred dollars. No, no, I, I don't even have fifteen hundred <laughs> And if I did, I'm not putting it towards cultivate my mind. There's a right. new iPhone I got to get, baby. Who's, who's, <laughs> who's doing that? A $1,500 book? Are you crazy? Think about that. We don't spend that much intentional time cultivating ourselves, but there are other people that pay the money to cultivate how you think. Mm-hmm. That means you have to get aware of what's going on around you. If you're not selling, you're being sold. Right. If there's no product to sell, then you're the product. Would it be really wrong if I was to say that there's a new Patreon tier level for your Missing the Point podcast and it's $1,500? I, I, I don't think so. I, I, I'm really interested, though, who's going to sign up. All it takes is one. Be all it takes is one. That's yeah, it. all it takes is one. Yeah, no right. doubt. Christopher, get on the ORP Patreon. <laughs> that is a ridiculously high amount of money per person. Mm-hmm. It seems like nothing in the grand scheme of the amount of money there is, but they're allocating that for every one person in the United States. Right. Yes. And so that means 343 my- million people on, on, on average. Right. So, many so that people. means my household alone is $6,000 to convince us what to think, where to go, what to buy. It stacks up real quick. It's crazy. Exactly. 
Like that's the value of, of, of getting a hold of you. But there is a saving grace because listening to Drew Misson's podcast doesn't cost anything and it yeah, can help charge. cultivate the way that you think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He is working on a $1,500. Tier. He is. He is. But right now you can KBD. listen for free. So hurry up and Drew, <laughs> tell them where they can listen for this limited time before it cost them $1,500. <laughs> Until you have to pay out the nose, uh, you'll be lucky and you can find me everywhere you find the podcasts, all the usual streaming services, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, iTunes, all the usuals. Uh, my social media accounts are on mainly on Instagram under missing underscore the underscore point. I'm also on Twitter, heavily shadow banned on there, um, search band as well. Um, and you can reach out to me on email at drew missing 88 at gmail.com. Nice. And we will put most of that information. I'm not sure if I can remember it all. Most of that information will be on our social media post and, and show notes on our website and all that stuff. So you can find them. Make out a check but to the- cash, uh, $1,500, and, and then you get to the top-tier stuff. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> but here's the last thing that we can do, is we can remind ourselves of what Scripture tells us, which is we are never alone, and we're not fighting alone. God has promised to never leave us. And it's interesting. You, <laughs> despite Every time I read this, I want to go, despite what the song says, right? Because there's that ridiculous song that says, you know, he left the the 99 to come and find me. I can't even remember. But I, I, I did the thing that you hate, and I just left a, he didn't, he didn't leave the 99 on some social media post like a year ago. And there's still people arguing with me. Like every couple months, they'll be like, well, he went after the lamb and he left. Oh, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. So <laughs> it's funny. Just this week, I got like two or three more people arguing with me. Oh, yes, I saw it. That's not biblical. I know you did. But yeah, no, it doesn't matter how many lambs there are. God has promised to never leave us. That is the takeaway. And we have a community of believers all over the world. And that loving God that is never going to leave us actually intervenes on our behalf. Because one day we will be free from the constant bombardment of the lies and deceit. One day we will know clearly who our enemy is. And one day we will be living in a paradise far more beautiful than that of Pandora. But until then, we are deployed to this dystopian rock where we have to filter through embedded messages in movies, TV shows, and video games in order to remove the film they have put over our eyes. 